That to-do list you have needs one more thing. Chill. It's an easy thing to do. Just crack open an ice-cold Coors Light and chill. Take the afternoon off and binge watch anything. Go to happy hour and stay for a couple hours. Who's counting anyways? Or hang out with just your dog because you've had enough human interaction this week. Whatever you do, do it with a Coors Light. Mountain cold refreshment made to chill. 2020 Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to the Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Bald Face Truth. I've always said that I wanted a championship parade in my city. I want to see fans lining the streets. I want to see players uh, celebrating. I want to see a championship trophy hoisted. Parade is supposed to be a joyful place, and yet the Kansas City Chiefs parade today in Kansas City turned into uh, another incident and another example of something being taken from people in our country. As many as 15 injured, one killed, still getting details on the shooting that marred the Kansas City Chiefs championship parade. The early news reports that came out were were inconclusive. Some saying there was one shooter, some saying two, some saying as many as three. Some saying it was uh, just a standoff between two people that got other people hurt. But what we're being told by state, local, and federal law enforcement officials who've received a preliminary briefing on this investigation, and of course this information is subject to change as facts evolve and, and police do their work and detective work, there is no indication here of an act of terrorism. This appears to be more criminal in nature, some sort of dispute, some sort of argument, whether or not these individuals knew each other beforehand or something that developed here at the end of this celebration, uh, but there's no indication this is ideologically driven so it's not driven by hate or some sort of terrorism act i don't know i don't you know i don't know that we all should care or if it matters what the motivation is in the end it is a parade which is supposed to be a joyous occasion supposed to be something where uh, obviously people come to celebrate uh the accomplishments of the kansas city chiefs in the super bowl and community coming together we're talking about millions of people in kansas city uh, we had we had that sound from the mayor of Kansas City earlier in the week, and she was talking about the fact that you know they were going to have lots of uh, lots of security there. They were preparing maybe for Taylor Swift, and you know more than 800 officers on the ground in the area, and and yet uh, one uh, it is following the rally, uh, the Super Bowl parade rally for the Kansas City Chiefs. I want your reaction to this five zero three four one seven. 7575. We're going to have a, a guest coming up at uh, 324. Ann Killian of the San Francisco Chronicle had a tweet today where she was, uh, you know, essentially uh, writing a column about the 49ers who have fired their defensive coordinator, Steve Wilkes, and then suddenly found herself uh, having to deal from a news perspective uh, with another shooting. And, 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 and look, um, forgive me, but, you know, I, I'm left thinking about parades. You know, children, families, joyous occasion, movie theaters, shopping malls, elementary schools, 
um, it concerts. It doesn't seem to matter. But anytime you involve a weapon, a gun, bullets, um, you know, the fact is it ideal? Is it driven by ideology? Is it is it driven by foolishness? Is it driven by uh, you know hate? I don't I don't know. Like I'm not here to perform a psychoanalysis of the shooters that that do things that make no sense. They're inconceivable for, by my standards. But I am here to say that that like damn, can we make it stop? Like can we make it stop and i'm not even talking about this in the same vein as i'm talking about school shootings or or shopping malls or concerts it's just like this is a parade in kansas city and the fact that somebody even has a gun uh at a parade and gets into an altercation i'm sure we'll get details on this as it develops but you know i've been tracking this as well as some other people just uh uh you know do yourself a favor and just google shooting and you're going to get the Kansas City Chiefs shooting. You're going to get three Washington D.C. police officers who were wounded while making, uh, you know, a welfare check. You're going to get a standoff. Uh, you know, an, an ex-convict arrested in Portland. You're going to get um, the Billings, Montana shooting. You're going to—I mean, it's just like there's no end to uh, there's no end to that search. And so, uh, and there should be. And and what we should have started today's show with was talking about the 1977 Blazers championship parade and we should have been we should be talking about how far away your team city feels from holding a parade and uh you know whether or not you would attend the parade and maybe people who were there in 77 who were lining Broadway as Bill Walton and Maurice Lucas and Dr. Jack Ramsey uh came up the boulevard and you know, ended at Pioneer Square, and and I'm and I'm thinking to myself, like, you know, that should have been the start of the show today, and yet we've got to start by talking about the fact that, uh, you know, as many as 15 people are injured at the Kansas City Chiefs Super Bowl rally and their parade. Shots were fired towards the end of the victory parade in downtown Kansas City. One person is dead, as many as 15 injured. Five of those seriously. Two people in custody. Um, you know, officials are saying they do not believe the motive was terrorism, but when you pull a gun out at a parade, I don't know how we don't call that terrorism. 503-417-7575, senseless act of violence, NFL parade, help me make sense of it. we got a great show for you today. Uh, happy Valentine's Day to all of you out there, celebrating or not, too bad. I'm just wishing you a happy Valentine's Day. Wished my uh, father-in-law a happy Valentine's Day today, and he said, uh, okay. And moved on. So <laughs> I want your phone calls, though. Tell me what you thought of it. Tell me what you make of it. Tell me, does it disturb you in the same way that it bothers me? I literally went to tweet about it a couple times, and I just finally was like, I don't even really feel like tweeting because I don't even know what I'm going to say uh, on Twitter about another shooting, specifically one that interrupts the end of a victory parade. In the meantime, at the beginning of the parade, very different story. Patrick Mahomes uh, talking about a three-peat. No, for real, though, we appreciate everything y'all do. Showing up to Arrowhead every single week. We know we had to go on the road last year, but I promise you next year we'll be at home, and we're going for that three-peat, so don't get it, forget it. Don't get it twisted. We're doing it. Three times, first time in NFL history, we're doing it. Love y'all. Kansas City going for the three-peat 49ers. Changing defensive coordinators. Kyle Shanahan saying it just wasn't a good fit with Steve Wilkes. We'll ask Ann Killian of the San Francisco Chronicle 
about that uh, w- coming up. Um, also, Neil Jones of KCTV Channel 5 in Kansas City talked a little bit about the shooting at the end of the, vi- of the Chiefs' victory parade. And there are people over here now that are just so angry and frustrated that this happened because everybody understands what this means. Forget what happened up on stage. Forget all of the fun and, and the, 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 the great emotion, positive emotion. What's going to go out is going to be that it's a shooting, another shooting, and it's going to be perhaps, I hope not, but it's perhaps going to be a black eye for, for, for our community because that's going to be the headline around the world. Uh, 700,000 people or whatever it was, and there was a shooting at the end of it. Uh, and I, I, I don't know who was injured. All I can say is this. I'm glad it was not as bad as it could have been. Yeah, and the early reports um, about multiple children uh, being victims, um, inconclusive at this point as uh, police are saying that um, one person dead, 10 to 15 victims with wounds. They said that the police chief, Stacy Graves, saying uh, just uh, minutes ago that she does not believe that any of the 10 to 15 victims with gunshot wounds were children. But uh, she does also acknowledge the situation was fluid and said information is still being gathered. Stephen, what is your reaction when you heard this? Because I know you, you know, in, along the show prep, you reached out to me and said, how do you want to handle this? And and in the answer to that is let's let's. Let's hit it straight on. Yeah, it's a sadness. Like it's, it's one of those things where it's supposed to be a happy, happy time for Kansas City, and they're rooting on their Chiefs, and they got another Super Bowl, and then it turns out to be you know sadness, and just out of uh, you know for no reason really. Like it's like you said, there's no reason to have a gun there at the parade. Like it's supposed to be a happy time, everyone's celebrating, and then this is what it turns into, and this is what the talking point is, and it just goes away from everything that the chiefs accomplished on the field. And it's just, it's just nonsense in my mind that we have to, we have to talk about it again. Cause the, is it, you're right about the tweet thing, how you said you wanted to tweet, but you didn't know what to say. Cause there's nothing to say because what, what can you say that's going to help anything? Nothing's going to help it right now. Like we all just want to talk and we all want to say it needs to be better, but nothing ever gets done about it. So there's like, there's nothing. It's just, it's a hopeless feeling. And so my, my first thought then after that was, is this going to be the end of parades? Like, are, are we going to be not having these parades anymore? Like, is it going to have to be at the stadium where they're going to treat it like another, you know, regular season game so they can have a certain amount, certain capacity in there and they just do the celebration at the field or at the motor, like if the motor center, the Blazers ever got it, not on Broadway, but it'd be at the motor center. Like I, that, that was my initial thought was, man, like this is the type of thing that happens. And then everything changes in the world that we don't do the same way again and again. So I, I don't know about that, but it's just sadness, man. It just it, it just bums me out when this kind of stuff happens, and there's just no reason for it. It's, uh, it comes on the anniversary of the Parkland shooting, uh, and certainly on Valentine's Day, and certainly as I talk about a parade in our city, right? And, I, and I've always kind of said it, like lamented, like, you know, how long until we get to have a parade? And I'm talking about the Blazers delivering another championship parade to the city of Portland, or maybe I'm talking about whatever team you grew up rooting for having a parade in your hometown or your home city or your team's city and and what i keep thinking is like would would i pull my kids out of school you know steven would you pull your kids out of school would you go downtown and would you say hey you only get uh, so many opportunities to be part of a championship parade and i'm sure people in kansas city were pulling their kids out of school on valentine's day taking them down to the to the parade route celebrating watching Patrick Mahomes and Travis Kelsey and uh, all the Chiefs go by on the you know as part of the parade 
and celebrating the rally and then, you know, celebrating with other Chiefs fans. But you're right. Like, they can't control that environment like they can control a stadium. And I often, you know, I also say this. Like, a lot of us bellyache and complain when we go through airport security or TSA, you know, how long it's going to take or look at the lines or they're not staffing it. I, and I've sometimes caught myself when I'm in line at a stadium and I'm coming in and I, you know, I'm in a different line than most of the people are going through the stadium. And so generally there's only like one security guard or one x-ray machine or metal detector and all of the media are lined up trying to get through this thing and we're putting our bags in. And there's a lot of grumbling sometimes from people who are saying, hey, you know, there's got to be a better way. There's got to be a better process. There's part of me every time I do that that just goes, hey, I'm just glad they're checking. Because I've been in a lot of stadiums that I think have let their guard down, have not, you know, aren't checking as diligently. I think, um, you know, if a, if somebody really is determined to get a weapon into a stadium, I don't think it's that hard for somebody who's super determined to try to circ. If they study and they can circumvent rules, you know, I have found occasions when I go to stadiums and I'm at a lot of stadiums where I will walk up to go to the gate and there's nobody there and i'll walk in and i'll be like there was nobody at the gate i just like no, nobody checked my bag or they just see and i have a press pass and they wave me through and i'm like wait a minute like don't you want to check in the bag and 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 you know even my hometown like i grew up in california even though i was born in southern oregon i grew up in california and the hometown that i grew up in is gilroy california and it's you know just south of san jose and it's you know considered the south Bay Area, and you know, a small agricultural community. When I was, uh, you know, there in high school and growing up, it was you know a town of like twenty five thousand people. Like everybody knew everybody, and there was a community event that started in the nineteen seventies. And Gilroy is the garlic capital of the world, and it, you know, I was incredibly proud of that. Even though people made fun of it, like regionally down there, oh, you're the garlic garlic capital. Oh, you smell like garlic. Like they would make fun of it, but every summer. Our community came together, and we celebrated the community, and all the nonprofit organizations would participate in this garlic festival that was put on over a weekend, and it was a fantastic community event that raised so much money for nonprofits, and it was a place you could go where everybody saw everybody. And then what happened? Um, you know, just a couple of years ago, um, you have somebody who basically cuts a hole in the fence, 2019, and brings in a, ro- a rifle and kills three people and wounds 17 other people before shooting himself after a shootout with police officers. 19-year-old kid, you know, cut a hole in the fence, came through the fence, a three-day event. There's like eighty to 100,000 people in this park over a three-day event. It's a huge event. And, you know, on the 41st Garlic Festival, uh, this person walks in, kills three people who are just hanging out on a weekend, wounds 17 others, and what happens? The Garlic Festival is no more. That was the last one that they ever held because they can't get insurance for the event, and frankly, it's just ruined the event. And to your point, Stephen, you've talked about, like, you know, will there not be championship parades? Well, there should be, and I wish we could get back to a place where everybody felt safe, but I got to be honest with you, like, you know, we, you know, some kids go off to school. What are they doing? They're practicing, uh, you know, lockdown drills. Um, you know, you go into a, uh, every time I go to Clackamas Town Center Mall, 
I was there when the when the shooter opened fire in that mall. I was in the parking lot headed into the into the Macy's store and shooter opened fire and everybody came pouring out of the doors and my lasting image of that day was watching um a Clackamas County Sheriff's deputy pull his cruiser up to the doors of the Macy's and train himself behind the door and pull out his rifle and aim it at the door and I could see his eyes and he was scared in the fear in his eyes like to see a police law enforcement officer who looked scared his face was sheet white he looked just anxious and scared and i and just every time i go into that mall now i think about you know that day and what happened and you know people who lost their lives uh alex forsyth the offensive lineman at university of oregon his dad steve was at the mall and got shot and killed that day alex and i have talked about it you know, I was probably maybe three or four hundred yards away from his father, you know, within minutes of his dad losing his life. And it's just senseless to me. I want it to stop. You know, uh, I know people say things like thoughts and prayers at moments like this, but it actually will take real action and legislation. And it's going to take some common sense. And, you know, as the as the. uh Details of the shooting in Kansas City become clearer and clearer. We're going to get an idea of what the motive was and who the perpetrators were and uh, what the uh, what the weapon was. And, of course, everybody's going to pick their agenda. But all I would like, and I think the vast majority of the audience would probably nod with me, I would just like us to all be able to go to a parade or a shopping mall or to send our kids to school without having to worry about any of this. Leave it here. Ann Killian, San Francisco Chronicle, coming up. I'm telling you, it's it's one of the most heartbreaking things that I never thought about. But when my now seven-year-old and nine-year-old kids, you know, came home from school when they were like in kindergarten and second grade a couple of years ago, um, you know, and they came home talking about the lockdown drills that they had to do. I mean, it hit me like a bag of bricks. Like, I didn't have to worry about that when I was in school. You know, people who went to the Blazers championship parade in 1977 didn't have to worry about, you know, somebody pulling out a gun. Active terrorism or not, when someone pulls out a gun at a parade, that's an act of terrorism. Uh, Ann Killian is a columnist of the San Francisco Chronicle. She had a great tweet today at 151. Ann, who I is, I think is one of the best people in sports media, one of the best people I ever met in a press box. She says, I wrote a 49ers column, started rewriting it due to the Steve Wilkes news. Wilkes was fired by the Niners, defensive coordinator. Saw the Kansas City news, and now just don't feel like doing anything but being sad about our country. Ann Killian of the San Francisco Chronicle joining us now. Thank you for that tweet, Ann. Oh, how are you? I'm all right. I mean, I'm just tired of this stuff happening, and I feel helpless to stop it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really um, every big gathering, every joyous occasion, every everything we do in life in America. Um, this hangs over our head, and I think we're kind of fooling ourselves if if we think it's not. I am, um, you know, I spent the whole uh, week last week right next to Mandalay Bay, and you know, I mean that casts a shadow um, over that whole town. And I don't think that there's, you know, I think you're crazy if you didn't think about it when you're going to Allegiant Stadium or going to, 
the um, you know the NFL experience or any of those things with masses and masses of people. Um, I talked to Eddie DeBartolo, the former owner of the 49ers, and he wasn't coming to the event. We were talking about why, mostly you know his, his knees aren't doing well, but he said. You know, also it just seems like like such a target kind of event. I have grandkids, and I'm so worried about them for them every time they go to anything. And I was like, oh my god, you know, thanks for telling me that at the Super Bowl, Eddie, where I am and you're not. But um, I think it's just something that we, you know, it's just it's just there all the time, and and nobody, you know, until our elected officials have the balls to do something about it. Um, you know, we have to live under this threat. And, you know, don't don't tell me that more guns are the answer because there were 800 armed police officers at this event this afternoon. Yeah, it's, uh, you're right. When I go into a movie theater, I look around. When I go into a shopping mall, I am, uh, I am the diligent one in our family kind of checking everybody out. And, and I got to be honest with you, Ann, like I've been at a, a lot of stadiums where the national anthem's playing, we're all quiet in the press box. And I, it, the thought crosses my mind, and I've never told anybody that before saying it right now. The thought crosses my mind, like, I hope everybody's safe today. Yeah, yeah, and at some, you know, I, I don't know if the Blazers uh, do it at their games, but at Warriors games, you know, they shoot off indoor fireworks during the anthem, and I flinch every time because, you know, it's it's a little scary. Um but yeah, I mean, I, I just, I don't, I don't know what the answer is. Um, I think, you know, the fact that a whole bunch of really popular, high-profile athletes in a state like Missouri um, might have some super strong feelings about this right now, uh, you know, weirdly helps because it takes people, you know, in it doesn't take me in in the the San Francisco Bay Area feeling lousy about this. But, you know, it takes uh, the will of the people in in those states where they want to pretend that, you know, thoughts and prayers are going to cure this or more guns, you know, arming teachers, things like that are going to cure this. It's, you know, we got to we got to have I mean, we, we know what the numbers say. We know what the American people think. Um, it's just got to kind of get down to electing the, the right people. And Killian, San Francisco Chronicle columnist with us. And take me through your day, because you start off, you say you're writing a Niners column. Then Kyle Shanahan calls a news conference, announces he's firing his D coordinator. And then the Kansas City shooting at the parade happens. And, you know, just go through kind of the range of your work day there. Well, I had been at their press conference yesterday. They're Kyle and John uh, Lynch's, uh, they're kind of end of the end of the end of the day press. I mean, end of the season press conference. She's very grim, very sad. Um, and uh, because of circumstances, both with, you know, work production at our place and, and various things, I wasn't going to write anything until this morning. So I, I wrote my old column and then Wilkes got fired. So then I was thinking, well, I got to go back in and rewrite it. And um, I was kind of going to make, you know, Kyle hadn't watched the game yet. Instead, he'd watched Griselda, and I don't know if have you been watching Griselda on Netflix. It's um, <laughs> it's about a a, uh, a drug lord, a female drug lord who takes out ruthlessly takes out all her opposition um, with violence. And so I was gonna like kind of like make a play on use that rewrite my lead with that stuff. And um, I just when I heard the Kansas City news, I'm like, you know, there's no time to be making jokes about. Um, 
anything. And that was another thing, you know, I mean, whenever you uh, are covering a team and they go through something like the 49ers went through on Sunday, you know, you use words like heartbreaking and anguish. And, um, you know, I, I very much always avoid the word tragedy, but sometimes you see that popping up in people's columns or stories, um, which I disagree with. But, but you know, you, you use words like that about human emotion. And, and that's not to, it's not to deny that those aren't there. I mean, this, it was a very emotional loss for that, that team. But then something like this happens today and you just, you know, kind of puts everything in perspective. Like, you know, there's no anguish like what the parents of those nine children are in the hospital are going through right now. So, yeah, And Killian with us, a San Francisco Chronicle. Yeah, you're so right. I mean, I had people after Washington lost the national championship football game or the 49ers lost say, like, how do I cope with this? And. And I and look, I love sports. I grew up with sports. You grew up with sports. We work in sports. And um, I don't know if being around it more has desensitized me a little bit, but I always think, like, gosh, what an amazing season the 49ers had. What an amazing season Washington had to get that close. Yes, is painful, but it's a lot less painful than, like, the Blazers' season this year. And and you're right, the, the framing of what happened today in Kansas City certainly puts it all in perspective. Um, the, the Niners, like, the Wilkes thing... Did you get the sense earlier in the year that Shanahan had kind of hat run yeah. its course with Wilkes? Yeah, that. So you know, all the stuff you're seeing on on social media right now about oh, what a scapegoat! Oh my God, it was the defense wasn't the reason they lost the game. This was coming. Um, you know, it wasn't a good fit. He he came out of a different system. He didn't run the system that Kyle wants to run. That that Robert Sala ran that the D'Amico Ryans ran. Um, it was kind of a bit of a reach to begin with. Um, he, you know, his expertise is defensive backs. Their strength is the front seven. Um, you know, the whole, he's a, he's, he seems like a great guy. I didn't, I didn't really get to know him very well, but you know, he's, he's a really well-respected man, really uh, terrific um, kind of a leader, but, but, very different from the other guys, the two he succeeded. And um, it just seemed like a bad fit. We had the whole debate about, oh, my gosh, is he going to, you know, stay up in the booth? Is he going to come down on the field? You know, it's just a, kind of a nonsense debate. But you could tell that by the fact that even became an issue of where he was going to coach from during games, that there it was kind of a weird fit. Nick Bosa kind of threw him under the bus, to be quite honest, you know, of, of all the things that were said uh, after the game, both of saying they weren't prepared for Mahomes on either of his keepers um, was kind of one of the more startling things. So I think, um, and, and the way the defense played in the other two playoff games, uh, you know, it's a very, it was the number one ranked defense, I believe, last year, or at least in most categories. And they got, you know, should have gotten even better this year because they had Hargrave and they just, they got they weren't as good um and then in big moments they were really not very good like the you know the first half against detroit um much of the packers game so yes did they did they play you know the super bowl might have been their finest moment at least in regulation but um you could tell also i don't know if you remember in the in the overtime uh tony romo was circling where the on his telestrator where the where all the dbs were lined up and he said oh no they're going to do that again and then kyle called the timeout so you could 
you know, it was, it was happening in real time for the TV viewer that Kyle was unhappy with what the defense was doing. And so that was another kind of a big, a big uh, tell. Um, I, I think this might have happened even if they had won the Super Bowl. There might have been like an agreement of parting of ways because it just, it was kind of an awkward pairing. I look, look at the window, and everyone talks about the window to win. Uh, most of the core of this roster will be back, but do you get a sense this Niners team, will they be back next year, focused, locked in, maybe improved in, in certain positions, or is there a threat here that this is as this is the ceiling for, for this team and, and this coach? Well, well, I certainly don't think it's the ceiling for this coach. I mean, he's 44 years old. He's one of the best. I mean, he's one of the best coaches, you know, in, in football, without a doubt. Um, I What I think is going to be hard is these have been emotional gut punches um, four out of the last five years. Really tough ways to end seasons. And this was the toughest one of all. And people said, you know, why, why you know, in the press conference yesterday, why, why is this the hardest? Well, you lost the Super Bowl in overtime. I mean, that is brutal. There's only been two Super Bowls that went to overtime, and Kyle Shanahan has been on the losing end of both of them, the first time as the offensive coordinator in Atlanta. Um, but so I just think it's so emotion. It's emotionally hard to get up and do it all over again. You know, every a lot of things went right for them this year. They didn't have a lot of super serious injury problems. Obviously, the Greenlaw thing in the in the Super Bowl was terrible, but but they, you know, it's just so hard. It's such a long season, and it takes so much that um, it's it's not so much their talent level because I think most of the core will be back. I think it's gonna the team will look an awful lot the same. But I think it's just the emotional toll that it takes year after year. Um, and I do, th- I do think Kyle Shanahan will will win a Super Bowl. Um, I think he's he's I, the whole he can't win the big one. I think is a little bit of an unfair rap. I mean, that's that's the world, you know, that's the way it is. And he has had some kind of spectacular losses on the big stage. But, you know, they were right there. And they were going up against the best quarterback in football. And you could just tell by the faces of their offensive players on the sidelines that it was inevitable. They they, they just kind of knew what was going to happen when Mahomes got the ball in his hand. Now, should he have... You know, I don't know how where you come down on the whole. Do you take the ball first in overtime debate? Um, I kind of think you don't want Patrick Mahomes to know exactly what he needs to do to beat you. <laughs> right. But I also, but but I also fully envision Patrick Mahomes getting the ball first, going down and scoring a touchdown, and then you're asking Brock Purdy to, to go match the best player in the game. And I think that's, you know, that that's a pretty hot tall order too. So, yeah, I. I don't know. I don't think I don't think there was, you know, there's certain things you can pick out little moments and that's the way football is, but clearly it wasn't any kind of a butt kicking. I mean, the 49ers were right there. I think they're going to be the best team in the NFC again next year, but but is that good enough? I don't know. And Killian San Francisco Chronicle. I kind of wondered too if Kyle Shanahan's thinking was my defense has just been on the field in the fourth quarter. You know, Mahomes it was a drive, they were on the field for a while. Let's take the ball. Let's put. Uh, let's get my defense on the sideline for a bit, you know. And I don't. And I, it bothered me a little bit that the that you know the perception was that he didn't know the rules or the players didn't know the rules and the Chiefs were more prepared in that situation. But I, I agree with you. I just don't know if it matters if Patrick Mahomes is, you know. And if you go first and get seven, 
you know, Patrick Mahomes might go first and get go second and go eight, get eight, you know, and like just beat you eight to seven in the overtime. Right. So exactly, you know. they they would know they had to go for two. So um, I I think I think uh, he did right after the game. He didn't really talk about the defense, but yesterday he did concede that you know he knew that they were pretty gassed and they'd been out there for a long time. It'd been a really long drive to and regulation. So that was, and you could tell, I mean, I kept seeing shots of them on the sideline, you know, coming off the field on and off, and they looked, they looked gassed. Um, so that's probably part of it. He had analytics people who say, you know, this is the best thing to do, um, you know, which I think you could, you can kind of throw up the whole, he knew exactly what the overtime rules are. I don't know where this thing has started that Kyle didn't know what the overtime rules are. He knew what they were. And John, you've covered sports long enough. Does it matter if the players don't know exactly what the rules are? No. Not at all. No. I mean, the, if, if it's, a, it's like a dirty little secret. <laughs> players don't know the rules of all sorts of things that are happening in sports. I can't tell you how many times in a post-game locker room we've said, well, what about this? And they're like, really? I didn't know that. <laughs> like, yeah. It's just, um, you know, their job is to do their job. They get out there and they do their job, and, and they're not thinking about strategy. They're not thinking about oh, if this happens and this happens, that's that's the coach's job. And he was thinking about that. So, yeah, I don't think it really matters what the what the players knew or didn't know. I've covered three Pac-12 championship games at that stadium, and, you know, it's, it's a nice uh, atmosphere, but it's not a Super Bowl. How did Vegas do with the Super Bowl? Um, well, I think the reviews are probably going to be very good. I was in Vegas for eight days, which is about seven and a half days too long from my point of view. <laughs> Um, it is not my town at any level. I think, um, you know, one of the things about, about, like, I thought it would be good because everything's compacted, right? Like there's the strip and most things happen on the strip, but, but it wasn't that way in reality because the teams were staying 45 minutes away from the strip out in the Lake Las Vegas, wherever that is. And, um, so we had to go out there. They had to be bussed all around for their practice facilities. Um, there, I heard estimates between 350 and 500,000 people came into Vegas just to be there, not to go to the game, wow. to be there. And so it was just the congestion. Um, it was, it was pretty intense. If you like Vegas, you might've loved it. Um, I did not love it next year. It's in new Orleans, which actually is a compact little Super Bowl city. That's, that's always, uh, to me, that's the best Super Bowl city, but, um, Yeah. I mean, it was it was okay, I guess. <laughs> Did but, you have to stand uh, in no. long lines, long lines, and congested uh, casinos? Long lines, lots of lines for food. Yeah, to everyone. I, I'm not a gambler. Uh, you know, every every casino was packed with people lighting their own money on fire all the time. <laughs> I just I don't understand it. So uh, yeah, I mean. And the you know the stadium's nice. Um, the stadium worked pretty well, I would say, for the most part, from our you know our point of view. I, I don't know what the what the players thought about. It. I mean, there was there were problems. You know, the 49ers had a big issue with their field problem with their field uh, that they were practicing on that was a real problem. And you know, I, things like that shouldn't happen when the league is spending so much money and making so much money um, on these players. But uh, yeah, I mean it. It was it was fine. Uh, it was cold and rainy most of the time, so you know yeah. I don't think that was kind of what they envisioned. But uh, you know I, I I think it was a it was a fine city. Um, you know there's 
New Orleans is next, and then Levi's is going to be after that. And mm. Levi's is not a great place to no. host the Super Bowl, no. as we found out uh, a few years ago. So, yeah, I don't – it's just the, the event has just gotten – it just keeps getting bigger and bigger, and this was probably the biggest of all. And it's so – in a place like Vegas, it's just excess upon excess, you know. I mean, it's the most excessive sporting event in the world in the most excessive city. So, yeah, it was it was a lot. Ann Killian, San Francisco Chronicle columnist. Follow her on Twitter, at Ann Killian. Thank you for your work. Thank you for your good heart and your friendship, Ann. Thank you. Okay, John, good to talk to you. There you go. Ann Killian uh, from the San Francisco Chronicle. So good. And, uh, you know, she's written books. She's been a columnist at the Mercury News, was a colleague of mine when I worked in San Jose for just a uh, blink and... Uh, respect the heck out of her work, and uh, obviously you hear what kind of person she is. Our big splash is coming up. Leave it here. We got Punch It Audio coming up top of the hour. Adam Silver, NBA commissioner, talking expansion. Bo Nix in the NFL draft. Where is Joel Klatt projecting him? You'll hear it in Klatt's words as part of Punch It Audio. Plus, uh, uh, Taylor Swift, I don't know why. Makes some people angry. Super Bowl ratings way up. Record ratings. No, more people watch the Super Bowl than any event since the lunar landing. And uh, female viewers were up nearly 10% over last year's Super Bowl. It's the Taylor Swift effect. And yet people continue to rant and be upset about Taylor Swift being around the Super Bowl. You'll hear more of that coming up top of the hour as well. Uh, in the 5 o'clock hour, we're going to talk about the transition to the Big Ten Conference, uh, Oregon, Washington, UCLA, USC making that transition. Of course, uh, Utah and the two Arizona schools going to the Big 12. And Stanford and Cal off to the ACC. Oregon State, Washington State busy making plans, trying to get rid of Conference Commissioner George Klyovkov. They are now negotiating and uh, expediting his departure. I wrote all about Klyovkov's legacy, his biggest mistake, which I think was his failure to manage his bosses. See, the com- conference commissioners, they're, part of their job is to manage the room, manage their board. Well, I wrote all about Klyovkov today at johnconzano.com. I think he failed to manage his board. Like any good attorney is managing a client. You have to manage that client. Uh, Klyovkov did not manage his bosses. Did a bad job. And, and some will say his bosses didn't want to be managed. That's okay. That's still the job. It's a hard job, but you got to do it. All right, uh, we uh, give you our big splash. We do this every day. This is the one thing you absolutely need to know today. Look, look, look at it. Where? Down there. The big splash. Brought to you by Killer Burger, home of the peanut butter pickle bacon burger and voted best burger five years in a row. Killer Burger, the burgers your mama warned you about. Well, the Patrick uh, Patrick Mahomes and his Chiefs teammates celebrated today their back-to-back Super Bowl championship. Patrick Mahomes calling for a three-peat. No, for real, though, we appreciate everything y'all do. Showing up to Arrowhead every single week. We know we had to go on the road last year, but I promise you next year we'll be at home, and we're going for that three-peat, so don't get it, forget it. Don't get it twisted. We're doing it. Three times, first time in NFL history, we're doing it. Love y'all. Sounds locked in, says he's promising they'll do it at home. Of course, the uh, parade and the rally was marred 
with a shooting incident, uh, multiple arrests, one person confirmed killed, uh, eyewitnesses on the ground talking about what happened. Listen here. All of a sudden, people started crushing forward. Everybody started running. There was screaming. We didn't know what was happening, but this day and age when people run, you run. And so I put my arms around her and we tried to push through so people wouldn't run on top of us. And there was a woman crying, saying something about somebody had been shot. Um, of course, it's hard to know, is it a singular incident or is there an active shooter? But we got pushed all the way up to Union Station where they had gated everything off so you couldn't get in for the chiefs. And everybody started jumping the um, rails and pushing everybody over. We got inside and we thought that, okay, it's calm now. We're inside. We'll be safe. And we had moved down the stairs so we could exit back out. And I told my, my daughter, let's just sit down for a minute in here and breathe because we don't have a car. We don't even know where to go. And about that time, people started running again. And some girls were saying um, there was shooting. All of a sudden, they all started come running out. And then you see all this policemen come running in there. Um, and you knew something happened in the station. You knew something happened inside while everybody coming out. Yeah, this is shocking because this is supposed to be a, a joyous occasion. Now, the latest reports saying one killed, at least one killed, more than 20 injured. Three people remain in critical condition. Shots fired near the end of the parade. Uh, NBC News reporting uh, that uh, three people are in custody. They do not believe the motive was terrorism, but let's debate what is terrorism. I think you pull a gun out at a parade. You're a terrorist. Uh, witnessed, uh, witnesses uh, reporting that um, that uh, it was chaos, as you heard there. Um, shouldn't happen. Shouldn't be. Shouldn't happen. This makes me sad for our country. It makes me sad, uh, you know, frankly, that uh, kids go to school and have to practice the lockdown drills in that you know, you and I go into stadiums and we look around and go, is it safe in here? And then we go to an airport and we, you know, this is just uh, this is uh, an evolving world that we're in. And it makes me sad for us that uh, you've got acts of violence in public places like this and uh, makes no sense to me. I'll never understand it. And, you know, I don't want to sound like one of those people that's saying, oh, my childhood was better than you know, the childhood today. But. I have to worry about this. I don't know what my biggest worry was in childhood, like coming home and, you know, I was thinking about, you know, what, what I, who was going to play out in the backyard with me. Like, I, you know, I, what games we were going to play, what cartoons did I miss? Like, you know, I, didn't, I just didn't live in a world that had uh, some of this complication and danger to it and uh, makes me sad for us, makes me sad for uh whatever comes next and it's uh it's just infuriating that this stuff this kind of stuff continues to happen uh four o'clock hour we will uh start with punch it audio and uh and uh we will go uh in the five o'clock hour have a conversation about the transition to the big ten anna will be along on this valentine's day uh i don't know if you took care of business i happened to be over at the grocery store today and uh i saw a whole bunch of people having the same idea People were buying flowers and buying cards and buying chocolate, and I was thinking it's okay to be trite. It's okay to be a copycat on this day. Sometimes you got to check the box. Now, where do you stand on the social media post to your significant other is a whole other conversation. Anna and I had a deep conversation about this today. Does it, uh, you know, does it, uh, is it poor form? To post on social media, oh, you're my Valentine and a picture of your significant other. Uh, or is that to be expected? Or, 
is it uh, is that for other people? Like, I'm okay with the birthday celebration posts. Like, I actually think that the birthday celebration post says, hey, here's my significant other. It's their birthday. If you didn't know it, help me celebrate and wish, you know, Anna a happy birthday. And then people will pile on. But it always has confused me a little bit on Valentine's Day because the act of recognizing a person as, hey, you're my Valentine, that's a one-to-one transaction, right? Like, like that's you to me, me to you. That's, that you know, your significant other. That's not, that's not like for the rest of us. And yet we see a lot of people putting it out there. And then Anna said, I agree with you. But she said in the world of like suburban moms picking up kids from school that, you know, she lives in at three o'clock or whatever, she's like, you know, you do kind of notice the people who aren't wishing each other a happy Valentine's Day. And I said, you know, I'm not doing this for other people, nor should you have to do it for other people. Stephen, where do you stand on the idea of the public social media Valentine's post for your significant other? Yeah, no, I, I think with Valentine's Day, it. If you're married, like, that's expected, right? Like, it's expected that that person would be your Valentine, no matter who it is. Like, and so for me, I'm not down with the Valentine post. I get the birthday post. Like like you said, it, you're celebrating that person's birthday. Maybe people don't know that. But I think if you are on social media at all, like, and you're married, people will know that. And so they know who your Valentine's going to be. But Do they, though? Are people going to talk? They're going to be like, oh, they're on the rocks. I don't know. You know I, John didn't post they Anna they, Valentine's Day post. They should. They should know. <laughs> they should be better than that. But I'm with you. It, it, Valentine's Day, I'm out on it, but uh, I'm down with the birthday post, Just I guess. tune in at, for the 5 at 5 and see where it goes today, and you'll know. Maybe you'll, you'll know be fighting. Sure. Who knows? <laughs> you'll know for sure. But I like the birthday post I get, and I also get the anniversary post. Because the, the anniversary post is about, hey, so we're celebrating this union, and hey, look how long we've been married, and that could be a public thing. Like you invite people to your wedding, right? Hey, I had a funny thing that happened today. I don't know if this will come up when Anna comes on the show later. But uh, the other day, Anna never says, oh my gosh, I want that. That's just like when she's looking at like products or clothes or material things. She's just not that way. Knock it on wood. She's not that way. But the other day she was on the gram instagram and she was like oh my gosh i want that jacket portland gear friend of the show marcus harvey founded a company called portland gear has this red letterman's style jacket it's bright red looks like something taylor swift would wear it's got a rose on it and um portland gear like a week or two ago announced that they were going to have like only a hundred of these jackets for sale. I made a mental note of it. Because, you know, I was like, oh, that would be a nice Valentine's Day gift for Anna. Like, she wants that jacket. She never says, I want that jacket. It's not her style. She must really want it. And so um, I made a note that it was going on sale, I think, last Friday. And I made a mental note at 10 a.m. last Friday, these 100 jackets were going to go on sale on the Portland Gear website. I jumped on there right around 10 a.m. I did not get one of the jackets. They sold out, okay? And they sold out in her size. They still had, like, a large available. 
and I debated, you know, maybe I just buy her the bigger jacket, and I, and I uh, then we could exchange it if they ever get, you know, other ones in stock. And I, but I decided against it. I missed out. I didn't get the jacket. So today I'm uh, prepping for the show, and of course a delivery shows up, and it's UPS. It's asking me to sign for something. I open the door, and it's a package from Portland Gear. And I thought, oh, did she? No, she didn't. And I said to her, hey, uh, you got a package. And I said, what is it? And she says, that's that Portland Gear jacket. (laughs) She bought it for herself. She got online, beat me to it, bought it for herself. And I said to her, I was going to take a picture of the jacket and give it to you for Valentine's Day to say, hey, when they get them back in stock, I'm going to buy you one. And she says, never mind. You bought it for me anyway. That's uh, that's the way it goes. So she got her jacket, Marcus Harvey and Portland Gear. Shout out to those guys. Can you make more than 100 of those? Come on, Marcus Harvey. But then it like, loses all its value. It is kind of a cool thing. Did you see the jacket? No, I did not know. You got to look at it. Look uh, it. Go to go to Portland Gear's Instagram right now. And look at his look at this jacket. Like Marcus Harvey and what they have done with that company, it's nothing short of brilliant. University of Oregon grad who has created an entire company and an entire brand uh from the uh the space between his ears. Like just pure ingenuity, genius, marketing, design. Uh really love like all these companies that have sprouted up kind of and I think there's a there's a Nike slash Adidas effect. It's really a Nike effect. In our region, I've talked to this with my friend uh, Brian Capel, who has a design company himself, Space Monkey Designs. He is uh, the you know one of the creative directors for the college football playoff, and he did the NFL honors design, like the uh, sort of the he does like the parties and stuff. I've written about him; we've, we've had him on the show. Um, you know, he's talking about this Nike effect of all of these designers and creatives who are in our region who have sprouted up companies and advertising agencies and sneaker and t-shirt design companies and companies like Portland gear. Um, certainly Columbia has got an impact and an effect on that as well, but we we're like this hotbed of creativity in our region. Are you, are you looking at the jacket now? Yeah, I'm looking at it right here. The Letterman's ja- style jacket there. Yeah. yeah. It's like, it's not something I would wear. No, it's a little bright. I can see, I can see Anna wearing this though. Yeah, for sure. Reds or color. That's the other thing. Reds are color, and so like she was like, I'm all about that jacket. I've never seen her that way. Now, now I, I when she put it on, she put, I made her put it on. I said, uh, you know, happy Valentine's Day to yourself. And by the way, you finally got a Letterman's jacket. She got very offended. She said, I had a Letterman's jacket in high school, damn it. So uh, we'll see about that. All right, let's play some punch and audio. Best sound from all around. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Fish Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio. Presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Adam Silver is the commissioner of the NBA. He was asked about Vegas and expansion. There is a looming television negotiation for the NBA. But Adam Silver talking about the potential for expansion. And people in Seattle pay attention. What he says about Vegas probably goes for Seattle. Punch it. I think in terms of expansion to Vegas, what what we've said for a while now is 
we have one more year left on our television deals in the U.S. after this year. And so we want to figure out what our media relationships are going to look like. But then we will turn to expansion. And Vegas is definitely on our list. What's, what's remarkable about Las Vegas, it's not that large a market. Yeah, I mean, small. as the U.S. goes. I mean, I forget. I, it's like last I looked, I think it was the 44th largest market or something like that. Wow. But, man, do they punch above their weight. Punch above your weight. Uh, the sports capital of the world in the United States certainly felt that way for the Super Bowl week or two. But when Las Vegas gets a team, Seattle gets a team, it's like the worst kept secret in the NBA. They're going to get their TV deal. They're going to expand. It'll be Vegas and Seattle. We all kind of know it. Seattle's ready. Vegas is ready. Um, the NBA has its act together in that way. And I think the NBA is ahead of Major League Baseball when you when it comes to the pecking order, in part because they, they have things like this that are ironclad and kind of locked down. You don't have a looming NBA team that doesn't know where it's going to play. You don't have an owner of an NBA team like the owner of the Oakland A's saying, we want to be in Vegas, but Vegas going, well, we don't know if we want you here. There's just a lot of that that's undecided in Major League Baseball, and I think the NBA has a much stronger sense of where it wants to go, where it wants to be. Vegas makes sense. Seattle makes sense. End of conversation. Some people just can't get over the idea that Taylor Swift brought fans, viewers, attention, money to the Super Bowl. She was she she added value. Chris Russo going off on the subject. Punch it. In the AFC championship game, she was on for 38 seconds. All right, that sounds like not that big a deal. This past week, as we asked, well, how much you're going to run to her? He says, well, we don't go to her too much, and here's evidence. This past week, she was on the quote-unquote, it was an overtime game, for 55 seconds. All right, doesn't sound that bad. Yeah. They went to that box 12 times! 12 times! Yeah, he only caught one ball in the first half! I'm not interested! They couldn't pick out Len Dawson out of a lineup for crying out loud! You think they know who Curry Cope was? I mean, 10, 12 times, 12 times, uh, he had one catch in the first half. I mean, on defense, crossing her finger, oh my, and listen, I understand she's a huge, huge star, and I love the relationship, I swear to God, I love the relationship, on the field, it's legit and everything else, but it's a football game. Chris Russo going off, speaking for some out there, now I think he's a little tongue-in-cheek there, unless I have that read wrong. But 123.4 million viewers watched the Super Bowl on CBS Paramount Plus. It was helped, obviously, by Taylor Swift. It was fueled by Taylor Swift. Fans tuned in to see the 49ers and the Chiefs, but I can tell you from the people we had in our living room, there were a couple of individuals who had T-shirts on and said, I'm rooting for Taylor Swift's team. 20% of viewers report that they rooted for the Kansas City Chiefs because of Taylor Swift. It's okay. 55 seconds we can live with. How many times did they cut to the sideline and show some reaction shot of some player that I could care less about? Undeniable that Taylor Swift ratcheted up interest in the NFL. Undeniable that new fans were watching the game. 20% of viewers rooting for the Chiefs because of her. 
Polarizing figure still, though. Polarizing figure. Is she a distraction? I don't think so. Is she a distraction, Stephen? Not to me, no. It doesn't distract me. I Because I'm... I'm of the, uh, I think that they show lots of fans, and she's obviously the most famous one. So, like, they're going to show famous people, and it doesn't really bother me. Uh, I do think Chris Rizzo was a little bit, you know, playing up to a shtick there. Because, yeah. you know, the Travis Kelsey one catch thing, that is pretty funny to say, you know, one catch, and she kept, they kept showing Taylor Swift. But it is intriguing, like, to watch Taylor Swift on there to me. Like, I, I don't mind it at all, and I, I think she obviously brings in fans that weren't necessarily football fans. I was more interested in who else was in her box. Like, who are these other people that are hanging with her? And I'll be honest, like, saying that Taylor Swift is a distraction in the Super Bowl would be akin to saying that the commercials are a distraction. Well, of course they are. But there's a reason they're there and they're being shown. That's fueling the broadcast. So we're going to have to be okay with it. Meanwhile, Jason and Travis Kelsey... Talking about the incident on the sideline between Travis Kelsey and Andy Reid. Andy Reid got bumped. Kelsey was out of line. We all know he was out of line. Does he own it? Here are the Kelsey brothers. Punch it. The broadcast showed you having a heated exchange with Coach Reid. <laughs> so heated. People are all over this. I mean, I get it. You cross the line. I think we can both agree on that. I can't get that fired up to the point where I'm bumping Coach and it's getting him off balance and stuff. I mean, let's be honest. The, the yelling in his face, too, is over the top. I think there's better ways to handle this. I love Coach Reed. Coach Reed knows how much I'd love to play for him. I'm not playing for anybody else but Big Red. If he calls it quits this year, I'm, I'm out there with him, man. He ain't calling it quits. Come on now. He's not. I immediately wish I took it back. Coach Reed actually came right up to me after that, and he just let him know. Hey, man, I love your passion. I got cameras on me all over the place, man. He's letting you know not, not to be like that. Just fired me up even more to go out there and get a f***ing victory for him, man. Big Red, sorry if I uh, caught you with that cheap shot, baby. But damn, I love winning with you. Yeah, I didn't like it. I didn't think it was a good look for Travis Kelsey. I didn't think it was great for the Chiefs. I thought Andy Reid handled it fine. I'm glad his brother... Jason is saying, hey, you can't do that. You're out of line. I'm glad that we got that perspective and we get to hear that perspective. It was a bad look. I mean, you don't just go and bump your coach and you especially don't bump Andy Reid and you especially don't bump a 65-year-old Andy Reid. NFL Films caught audio before the coin toss in overtime. Also, listen carefully as... Kyle Shanahan yells at Fred Warner, we want the ball. And Patrick Mahomes seems to be a little confused by this, saying, they want the ball. Punch it. We want the ball, Fred. San Francisco, you are still the visitors. What is your call? Tails again. He called tails again. It is tails. You want the ball? Let's ready to kick. We're going to kick that way. San Francisco received first in overtime. Good luck, gentlemen. They want it. They want the ball. They wanted it. Hey, they want it. They wanted it, baby. We want them to have the ball. They want it, they can have it. Hey, even if we score a touchdown, they still get the ball. I didn't know that. We won the toss, we were going to kick off, too. We got what we wanted. Got what we wanted, said the Chiefs. The Niners, I wish that they would just put this to rest. Kyle Shannon had come out and say, hey, look, our defense was on the field too much. I get it. You know, Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs were going to 
have an opportunity to match it, but maybe it's bad strategy. I wish he would come out and speak to it in that way because I think that's where he stands, but I don't know, and it's not my job to defend him. Is it in, is it Shanahan's yeah. job to get Kyle Juszczyk to know the rules before right for overtime? I, I don't think so. I, I don't need to know. Like, I, I keep you know thinking about it from my perspective. Like, I don't need to know how you do your job. I don't need to know how, like, the satellite towers work for radio. Like, that's somebody else's job. Kyle Shanahan has to make the strategy decisions. Kyle Juszczyk is not going to be making a strategy decision. But I, I kind of wonder if the Niners scored a touchdown, though, if they would have, like, stormed the field. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, we didn't know the rules. But they know them now. And I bet a whole bunch of other NFL players that didn't know the rules are going, oh. But I put this a little on the NFL, too. Like, you know, I didn't I didn't think the broadcast was very clear. You know, Stephen, did you know, like, as the broadcast was unfolding? What? Uh, I was honest, Googling. Yeah. I Yeah, I did not know. I, I thought it was just the regular season overtime rules. So I'm thinking, yeah, 49ers take the ball. And then it was just, you know, it was brought up like, oh, no, the Chiefs get a chance. And then Romo, you know, at the end of the first overtime goes, you know, because I'm thinking the Chiefs need to call a timeout. Romo's like, no, this is just the first quarter of the overtime period. Like, we can go into the second period, second quarter of overtime. Like, I'm I with you. I think it was, should have been clearly stated before that it, more than it should. You know, it was announced yeah, over the it, stadium. This is a new game. Out, this is a new game doesn't do it. No. Jerry Palm, CBS Sports Bracketology expert, joined us on the show yesterday. How many Pac-12 teams... We'll get into the NCAA tournament. Here's Palm. Punch it. I have a hard time seeing. That's five if everything really went well. Um, and then you're talking about Utah, Colorado, Washington State, and Oregon uh, all finding their way in. Um, I think that three or four is more likely. I kind of like four. I think, you know, I, I like Washington State to get in. Um, I, I like Colorado and Utah to get in. I'm not as sure about Oregon. Um but I, I, you know, Washington State's probably in the best shape of the four of them at the moment, um, and playing the best ball of the four of them at the moment. Uh, can't, can't really rule out what Washington. If Washington got hot, they, they'd have an outside shot. But they just have to. They really have to get hot. Time's starting to run out on them. Oregon sitting at sixteen and eight, eight and five of the conference. They're in a tie for third place. He must be in the top four to get a bye in the conference tournament. Keep an eye on that because I think it's going to be a little scramble for that fourth position. Currently, right now, I think Arizona-Washington State are the best two teams in the conference. I think Washington State is really good. I think Washington State could play to the Sweet 16 in the NCAA tournament. I think they have that kind of length. They are the second biggest team in all of college basketball. They're really good defensively. They, uh, they look good. Oregon, though, Oregon's got to win their home games. And I think they need to stay in the top four because it may be that Dana Altman's team has got to win the conference tournament or play to the conference championship game in order to get an NCAA tournament berth. They have placed themselves in that kind of jeopardy by losing a couple of home games, including the loss last weekend to Washington State at home. They'll be at Oregon State on Saturday. Uh, but uh, the top four in the Pac-12 right now go Arizona, Washington State. I think there's a gap after those two. Then it's Oregon, UCLA. Then a game back, it's Colorado and Stanford. Keep an eye on it. Joel Klatt has the Denver Broncos. 
picking Bo Nix in his mock draft. 12th overall. First round pick, Bo Nix. Punch it. To me, Denver's going quarterback. And they have to. They have to. They don't have the guy. And this was a team, by the way, that was hot and almost got themselves back into the playoffs. Think about that. The marriage between Sean Payton and Russell Wilson did not work. Russell Wilson, stylistically, is just not the type of player that Sean Payton is going to have success with. Sean Payton wants to have a guy that's basically a point guard on the field. This might be a little high for this guy, but the guy that I think fits best in that mold as an experienced, smart, point guard style, accurate passer, ball in the right spot, at the right moment is Bo Nix from Oregon. Are they going to stay at 12? Do they need to move up? I'm not sure. Maybe they can move back a little bit and get Bo Nix. But without a second-round draft pick, they've got to address that now. Clatt has Bo Nix going in the first round, has him going in the first 12 picks. I don't see it. I don't think he has the arm strength, the downfield passing game. I think those questions will arise as the draft approaches. I have Bo Nix in the second round. Steven? First-round pick, Bo Nix? Second-round pick, Bo Nix? I don't see first-round pick. I see a second-round pick. But I think the success of Brock Purdy has kind of showed the way. And I think Clatt is hitting on something with Russell Wilson there and Sean Payton. Like, a lot of these coaches now with their offenses, the way they need to perform, it's just like a point guard. You need to spread the ball around and not make mistakes. And we know Bo Nix is not going to make mistakes. Like, he doesn't throw many interceptions. Doesn't you know? He doesn't make those type of things. So I, I do think there is a, there's a spot for him in the NFL. But I just don't think the upside warrants a first-round pick. I think he goes in the second round, pick 33 to Minnesota. I think someone gets him in the first round, but I think they'll be reaching a little bit for him. I I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't do it. I don't think he's that guy, but we shall see. David Lombardi talking about the 49ers. How are they going to reload, rebuild? How do they keep Brandon Ayuk? How do they take care of the players they need to take care of in free agency? Stay under the cap. David Lombardi of The Athletic. Punch it. The financial Tetris. Here's how it's going to work for the 49ers. They've done such a good job over the course of the Shanahan-Lynch era of staying under the salary cap while also paying A-list players. And and the way that they've been able to do that is that they'll determine if you're an A-lister, and if you're an A-lister, that they'll pay you. That The 49ers have paid every single A-lister that they've drafted over the course of this regime. And I do think that Brandon Ayuk fits into that category. And what they've done is they've surfed a wave because the salary cap has increased every single season. So theoretically, you have a little bit more room every year to pay those A-listers. But you've got to figure out a way to replenish the margins of the roster so you're definitely going to let some guys walk and for that they've got 11 picks in this 2024 draft the draft is going to be immensely important for the 49ers this offseason as of right now you've got brock purdy still on that rookie contract one interesting name to watch is Jawan jennings he's going to be a restricted free agent these are the types of things that Good football teams have to deal with in, in the offseason. You've got a lot of guys deserving of money. Obviously, not everybody's going to be able to, to, to come back. Look, uh, it's interesting to see the financial chess game that has to take place at the end of a season for teams. And, and you know, the cap game that needs to be played. And some of this really makes the window for a team to win narrow. 49ers in that position. We've seen other teams like the Atlanta Falcons rise up, disappear. The Rams win a Super Bowl, fall off. It kind of makes the sustained success of the Kansas City Chiefs 
even more impressive. And and the value of Patrick Mahomes putting you in that position to win and win and win is just remarkable. I tend to think with the Niners have a big window because Brock Purdy's so young and McCaffrey's still really yeah. good and Debo. But is the window a lot shorter than we think it could be? I was looking at the cap number. The the advantage they have is that the number goes up every year. So as salaries go up, their numbers go up. Now they have traditionally been a team that will take care of their players. But it does mean if you're going to pray, like the player I think that they're really in a pickle with is Brandon Ayuk, their extra wide receiver, the guy that takes the top off the defense for you and makes all the plays that Debo Samuel and Christian McCaffrey and George Kittle aren't making. So that's the guy they got to keep happy. And if you follow him on social media or you follow his girlfriend on social media, you know they're both kind of hinting about, like, could this be the last time? Could this be my last game in a 49ers uniform? I think they're negotiating a little bit. But um, I think the 49ers will get it done. They don't normally play those games with players. The The fact that they've got a quarterback who makes less than a million dollars is an immense help. And, yes, you know, you talk about the transition from Jimmy Garoppolo or Trey Lance to Brock Purdy, part of it is a financial decision. They can They can do more at other positions because of that guy. And it, in part, was it fueled the rise of the Seattle Seahawks with Russell Wilson at quarterback. They had him on a rookie deal for a long time. They were able to stockpile and pay the defensive players, and you know, and uh, it, it they enjoyed a nice run because of it. Not so much when they had to pay him twenty or thirty million dollars for a season. One player, and is popping into the studio. Five at five, still ahead. So much to talk about, and we'll talk about the transition. Of Oregon, Washington, USC, UCLA to the Big Ten in the 5 o'clock hour, plus the strategy play by Washington State that benefits both Washington State and Oregon State. Big week for those two, and nobody talking about it. Leave it here. Happy Valentine's Day, everybody. Anna's in the studio. Anna bought herself a nice Portland gear jacket for Valentine's Day. I told the story earlier, Anna. It was so nice of you to... You know, get online and beat out everybody for those jackets, including me, that was trying to buy one for you. Well done. Happy Valentine's Day to you. Yeah, thanks. I uh, figured I would save you the trouble. It's just, you don't often say, I want that jacket. I know, I don't. Or I want that pair of shoes. Uh Like, that's not something you say. I don't know if people do that all the time. Mm -hmm. I assume they do. Yeah. Because well, you're not like that either. I am. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> I don't. I. Uh, you're like the opposite of. I'm that. the opposite of that guy. Uh, but I. But so when you said it, it really stood out to me. <laughs> it was not a. Subtle... And I wasn't even like dropping a hint or anything. It was just a instantaneous reaction. Yeah. When they went public with that jacket, I was like, "Oh my gosh, that is a what, beautiful what ca- jacket." What caught your eye about the jacket? Um, the color. I mean, mostly, it's the fact that it, there's huge roses on it. Um, like Rose Festival has been big in my life. Like the fact that Portland is the city of roses is actually meaningful to me. Park Rose. Right, Park Rose. You were a Park Rose kid. Yeah, Park Rose kid. I mean, it's just kind of embedded in who I am, woven into who I am. So when I saw that, I was like, yeah, I got to have it. And yet when you immigrated uh, from Taiwan to the United States and your parents gave you the name Anna, did not give you a middle name, you uh, you were able to pick your own middle name. Why didn't you pick the name Rose? Uh, well, how, I don't, how old were you when you got to pick your middle name? I was in third grade. I was uh, eight, 
and I was complaining because everyone else in the in the class had middle names. Yeah. And I did. I said to my parents, hey, what's up? You guys left that out. I don't have a middle name and I would really like one. So credit to them. Uh, they folded. Why do they get credit? They didn't give you a middle name. That was kind of a well, mess up. Well, no, but they could have easily been credit. like, they could have easily been like, whatever, you know, live with it. And they like took me down to some office downtown and they paid, you know, the $15 and I got to choose my middle name. And at that time, I wanted to become a professional ice skater. That was my mm. career goal, yeah. you know, as you do when you're in third grade. And I looked up to this gal named Tiffany Chen. Oh, yeah. I know. I know Tiffany Chen. The professional ice skater. And so uh, my middle name is now Tiffany because of that not achieved dream. Now, <laughs> did, did Tiffany Chen marry Robert De Niro? No. Really? It's a different Tiffany Chen? I don't know. Yeah, it is a different one. She's a uh, film film producer. Okay. Not the ice skater. I wonder if De Niro knows that, that he didn't marry the ice skater. <laughs> he um, he was but I, I, you know, I knew that ice skating was your dream the first time we went ice skating. Oh, really? <laughs> if, if anybody's ever dreamed of ice skating <laughs> and you go ice skating with that person at a normal rink, you figure it out pretty quickly because they act like there's no one else on the ice and they're doing glamorous moves while everybody else is just trying to stay upright. Yeah, it's kind of obnoxious. <laughs> I'll admit that. I'm that person in the middle. Anna Tiffany Chen over here. Like (laughs) attempting the triple Lindy. Yeah. Yeah, you did that. Um, Sow cow. Speaking of names, I had Reagan Beers, the Oregon State women's basketball star, on the show the other day. Yeah. Okay. She's a McDonald's All-American, two-time conference player of the week this season, having a great year for a team that is ranked number 11 in the rankings. Um, She's... Reagan with an R. Okay. okay. Beers. Yeah. Beers is her last name. Right. Which causes a lot of trouble. I figured out pretty quickly in her life and her siblings' lives because all the headlines are about, you know, uh, hold my beers. <sighs> this team gets more beers, you know, gets another beers, you uh-huh. know, like every sports headline yeah. has to do with a beer. Okay. Okay. But she pointed out on the show, I, I realized in doing, like, we have a research team prior, I don't have to explain this to you, but there's a research team that looks at all of the people we interview. Okay. So we get all kinds of details, way more than ever could appear in any interview. Okay? Yeah. So I know more about her than, than she realizes uh-huh. when she goes to do the interview. Because most of the people who do these interviews, i got to be honest with you, they're not prepping. They're yeah. just interviewing. Yeah. But I knew when Reagan Beers came on the show that she had brothers named Rocky and Rowdy. Oh, wow. Who both play football at FIU, Florida International University. Okay. And she has a younger sibling named Riley. My so goodness. It's Rocky, Rowdy, Riley, and Reagan. Her parents really committed to that R. They all have middle names that start with the letter L. Oh. So they're all R L B. Well, that makes monogramming real easy. Yeah. <laughs> the, and they're all R L B. They went with it, she said. Yeah. Her parents' names. Are Carrie and Ike. <laughs> and and here's the thing. Yeah. I actually that actually makes sense to me. Why? Because I grew up John. Okay. I don't know if you know that. <laughs> and and in like in my parents of my generation, a lot there were a lot of Johns. It was a popular baby name. Right. It's not only got like some biblical, you know, 
you know. Uh, yeah, it's got the glow of. It has the biblical know, glow of, of a disciple. Yeah, but there was also John F. Kennedy. Right. Okay. So there was there were a lot of Johns. Yes. Born in the 1970s in particular. Yes. So these are parents who were around when Kennedy was president. Uh-huh. These were parents who were in church when they were hearing about John the Baptist. And, uh, <laughs> you know, he was hanging with Jesus. He must be good. And so um, there was uh, all of this stuff going on with John. Yeah. And so every classroom I went into. Right. First grade, second grade, kindergarten, didn't matter. There was three Johns. Yeah. So you had to be like John C. I was John C, which morphed into JC. Uh huh. Short for J C. Yeah. Get it? Thank you for not Jose Cuervo, not Jesus. Yeah. It's J C. Yeah. All right. So, um, I I know that Carrie and Ike grew up like I did. Uh huh. That those are well, those are boring. Ike. That's a boring name. Ike. Ike's a boring name. Ike Carrie's is, a boring name. Ike is okay. Well, John's a boring name. Hmm. I th- I think it's di- I because I have the name yeah and I'm in Starbucks and they call out John yeah to this day yeah there's a couple of us looking at each other yeah. like is it my and, order and you're what all did, about the same age what did you order right like you know what did I order right like I I will intentionally if I back in the day before you were like scanning everything yeah I would give him a wrong name yeah and I would give him an unusual name uh huh Mortimer yeah. Xavier you know. Mortimer? No. One time I said, uh, the, per- the the barista asked me what my name was, and I said... Uh, what do you want it to be? I said, uh, whatever you want. Yeah. And they called out, whatever you want, and she had written that on the side of the cup. Fantastic. Yeah, she got me. But I think Carrie and Ike did what John and Anna did with yeah, their kids. Yeah, I know. Because John and Anna, yeah. when we sat down to have our kid name party or whatever we were disgusting names mm-hmm. serious convention happening mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's like the geneva convention yeah um i think carrie and ike did the same thing they went all right let's get away from like carrie and ike yeah rocky rowdy reagan riley yeah what did john and anna do graziana uh-huh and sojourner yep like the most like no one is going to be in starbucks going sojourner <laughs> and you know somebody going oh is that you or me that's true. It does make it a little inconvenient because whenever the kids go, you know, into those like tourist shops <laughs> and there's always like the keychains and the license plates that have names like Emma or Michael, like they'll never find Soji and Zia. They never have their name. They'll have to have those custom made. And they seem you know? disappointed by that. Yeah. It's like, did you really? They look. That's, that's the thing is they still look. I know. For their name, and I'm like, why are you bothering? Because it's not going to be there. And so I get why they did that. But you picked, for your middle name, Tiffany. Now, your dad, because your mom and dad immigrated as well, um, your dad got to pick his first and middle name. Yeah, and I didn't even know why he picked what he picked until you asked him once. Well, I'm an inquiring mind. I, I ask, like, I, I'm fascinated by the idea that... You could pick your own name, and again, like as an adult, yeah, as an adult, and again, I would, I'd go with a solid Xavier with an X. You're really into that Xavier. I, I just name. think like it's just the far away as I can get from John. <laughs> you know what I mean? Okay. Pete, my friends would call me X. X. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. so I, uh, I asked your dad why he picked his name, and his name is, is, is it? It's Wayne, Wayne Christopher. Christopher. And he goes by Wayne, but Wayne Christopher. And I'm like, if you could pick your name, you'd pick Wayne Christopher? Yeah. And he explained he wanted to be American. 
He's yeah. coming from Taiwan. Right. So he's emigrating in 1979 with China threatening to take over Taiwan. And uh, he was really excited about, you know, coming to America and becoming an American citizen. Yes. So he goes, John Wayne for Wayne. <laughs> yeah. Christopher Columbus for Christopher. He is basically as American as you can get in 1979. John Wayne, Christopher Columbus song. Song. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. And you wanted to be a figure skater. Yeah. He wanted to be in a Western. Yeah. Okay. Or on uh, the Nina, the Pinto, or the Santa Maria. <laughs> yeah. You impressed that I know that? Yeah. All right. Yeah. You right. remember that from third grade. Leave it here. You got the BFT. All right, before I get back to sports, I have one more thing I want to share that I saw. Can I do that? Can I do it? Yeah. Um, So I didn't know this was a thing, but I think we should all know that this is a thing. That a a British teenager was arrested um, and uh, charged with making a terrorist threat because he was at an airport. He was flying from... Uh, somewhere in Spain, uh, from the UK to Spain. Okay. He was at an airport, and he used Wi-Fi at the airport while using Snapchat to send a message to a group of five friends. He took a picture at the airport, and he joked. He said, quote, on the way to blow up a plane, Oh. I am a member of the Taliban. Oh. End quote. <laughs> and he sent it on a private Snapchat group message. Okay. But it was intercepted by by authorities in the UK because they monitor the messaging that is happening using airport Wi-Fi. So I don't know if you read the fine print, but apparently what you're messaging about when you use airport Wi-Fi huh. is being monitored, at least in some countries. Now, a judge in Spain, in Madrid, cleared the 19-year-old of all charges saying that um, that uh, that they understood that it was a joke made in a chat, and they also did not find any explosives or weapons. They did scramble fighter jets that made the plane after it was in the air. They made the like were riding alongside the plane and made them ground oh, the plane. Wow. now they the judge ruled that, the comments were made in a private environment and that the 19-year-old could not have suspected that the message would be intercepted. They did not make clear how British services managed to have access to his messages, <laughs> right. but it was made using airport Wi-Fi. They're tracking everything. Wow. That's uh, pretty intense. So that must be part of the disclaimer that you check when you go, yeah, no. I want to use the airport the, Wi-Fi. The disclaimer we all ignore. Oh, yeah. yeah. Terms of services. Yeah, yeah. So what they're getting from me, if they're tracking my messages, <laughs> is, do you want a Cinnabon? <laughs> you know? That's your typical message. I'm about to get a Cinnabon. You want one? At an airport. <laughs> You know? But you know, like, you just you can't even, like, you can't joke about stuff like that. You can't. No. We've told the kids that when we fly. We're like, don't even joke about it. Don't even say the word. You just don't. I made a joke with a TSA guy. Remember the guy who tells the jokes and riddles? He's a TSA guy at Portland International Airport. He tells all kinds of jokes. Yeah. And I came up with what I thought was a clever joke, but the punchline of the joke involved me saying something to the effect of uh, insulting him. Okay. He stopped me. Uh He saw the joke coming, 
he stopped me and he said, don't say that. Oh. He, and he said, you're going to get in trouble. Like, because even in a joking way, yeah. you're not supposed to make jokes with the TSA people. And yeah. But he had told me, the next time you come through here, bring me a joke. <laughs> and so I brought him a joke. It was a knock-knock joke. And I said, I was on my way to the, uh, you know, idiot's house or whatever. And then, uh, uh, you know, I I said, knock-knock. And, you know, he said, who's there? And then basically I, the joke was that he was the idiot. Uh, yeah. And I was coming to visit him. Yeah. And he said, don't say the punchline. And he stopped me, put his hand up. Yeah. Like, stop in the name of the law. And he said, don't say that. You could get in trouble. Wow. And I was like. For harassing. Yeah. And it was a joke a that he told me to bring to the airport. <laughs> well, he didn't tell you to bring that joke. But he said, next time you come through here, bring me a joke, because he always tells me a joke. Yeah. And I so like I brought guy. him a joke, but my joke was insulting him, and he was like, don't yeah. do that. I would have liked to have seen you get arrested for a no. joke. No. One time, here's one thing that happened <laughs> to me. Thrown on the ground. At the airport that annoyed <laughs> me. You know how you go through the security line? Yeah. I had gone, and I'd gone through the security line, and I had TSA pre. Yeah. And so I had a, I was flying Alaska yeah. on TSA Pre, and I got to the uh, guy, and you give him your ID, and they put it through the machine. Uh-huh. And they kind of eyeball you in a Larry David way, yeah. and then they let you through, right. right? So he eyeballed me, and he goes, uh, you need to go back to the counter. Okay. He says, your, uh, your sex is wrong. <laughs> so apparently when I booked the flight, I had put female. Whoops. And, but what if I had just said, well, I identify. Yeah. You know, like, but he goes, go, you need to go back to the counter and have them change that. Yeah. I had to go back to the counter, stand back in line, get a new boarding pass. Yeah. Tell him I, I'm a male. Uh huh. And then go back through. I don't know why that's important. Well, in today's world where everybody's using the bathroom and ra- racing and 100 meter races yeah. and swimming doesn't seem to matter. Like, why would it matter that I'm traveling with a boarding pass that accidentally has the wrong sex on it? That does put the TSA agent in a pretty, like, hard judgment situation, you know? Don't get me started on travel, though, and all the things that annoy me about travel. People in general. Just people. But I was just, I, and I'm actually kind of relieved, like, maybe I would have been self-conscious if I had noticed later that (laughs) this says female and he didn't say anything. You know, yeah. I might have been taking that personally. Passed you on through. Yeah, yeah, and I might have been a little upset by that. <laughs> Who knows? Hey, by the way, Jason and Travis Kelsey, they addressed the Andy Reid shove incident on the sideline at the uh, yeah. Super Bowl. Yeah, I saw that. Okay, can mm-hmm. I play the video a little bit? Here yeah. are the Kelsey brothers talking about mm-hmm. it. And I like here that Jason's calling Travis out a yep. little bit. Yep. He's kind of barking at him a little bit about yeah. it. The broadcast showed you having a heated exchange with Coach Reed. <laughs> so heated. People are all over this. I mean, I get it. You cross the line. I think we can both agree on that. I can't get that fired up to the point where I'm bumping Coach and it's getting him off balance and stuff. I mean, let's be honest. The, the yelling in his face, too, is over the top. I think there's better ways to handle this. I love Coach Reed. Coach Reed knows how much I'd love to play for him. I'm not playing for anybody else but Big Red. If he calls it quits this year, I'm, I'm out there with him, man. He ain't calling it quits. Come on now. He's not. I immediately wish I would have took it back. Coach Reed actually came right up to me after that, and he just let him know, hey, man, I love your passion. I got cameras on me all over the place, man. He's letting you know not not to be like that. Just fired me up even more to go out there and get a f-ing victory for him, man. Big Red, sorry if I uh, caught you with that cheap shot, baby, but damn, I love winning with you. Why did it bother people so much, the bump? Um... Multiple reasons. Uh, If you're a Swift fan, uh, people were concerned about her being with somebody who may or may not have an anger management issue. Mm, I didn't think about that. That's what I saw. 
and actually, I mean, maybe it's because I'm a woman. I don't know. That's kind of what I, where I went with it initially. My instantaneous gut was, oh, yeah, wow. Like, he's, like, I get the passion of sports, but, like, that was a level of aggression that I was like, oh, I hope he doesn't, like, turn that on her at some point. And then I had to kind of walk myself back from that and, and think, well, okay, he's a football player. Football players, it's a really violent, aggressive game. It's one of those things, it's hard to turn off. And then came all the reports that they're actually good with each other. They're, they have a tight relationship. Yeah, there wasn't going to be a say that. I don't, I don't need I don't anybody know. to say that they have a good relationship or bad relationship. Their relationship is their relationship. Yeah, I know. But, but it I, helped me, I but guess. Here's what bothered me. I mean, I think, first of all, there's an issue there. There's a lack of respect when you're bumping somebody like that. Sure. That's like bumping an umpire. Yeah. Okay, you don't do that. Travis Kelsey, who's not 65 years old, and you're bumping a 65-year-old Andy Reid. Right. So there's a level of disrespect that goes with it that I didn't like. Uh-huh. And I noticed, like in some of the subsequent videos, he threw his helmet, too. Andy Reid, somebody, some equipment guy ran and got the helmet, <laughs> which just sucks. Like, yeah. make him pick up his own helmet yeah, if he's right. going to throw it. Right. Some equipment guy goes to get it, and Andy Reid goes to the equipment guy, no. Yeah. Make him go look for it. Right. And I like that. Yeah. But, but here's the other thing. I have not seen that side. I had not, not, I've seen no hint of that anywhere. Yeah. It made me wonder if he's changing because he's dating you know who. Yeah. And he thinks he's a big shot because of it. I'm just saying. Yeah. I'm I'm still not 100% comfortable with it. Like, I feel like I've had to rationalize myself away from being super uncomfortable with it because I'm trying to be a reasonable person, which is what I attempt to be most of the time. But even what he said there, I'm sorry if, come on, not an apology. And I'm sorry if is not an apology. I do think like that conversation between the brothers was discussed. You can feel that they had a discussion prior to their podcast how to handle this and how to repair whatever damage to Travis Kelsey's reputation was done because of that. Because um, the brother saying you were out of line. Correct. It was important. Yes. An important distinction. And, and his brother yeah. is like the perfect person to call him out on it. Sean and Sandy. Sean, go ahead. You got about thirty seconds. What's going on? I think his brother set a bad example for him at the Bills game. And I've seen his brother upstaging people. And yeah. during the Super Bowl, I think Travis mm-hmm. thought it was his turn. And I see him upstaging people during the whole game. And then after the Super Bowl, when he's up there. With the Viva Las Vegas thing. I mean, think about that. Yeah, and showboating. I think we're going to get yeah. some good uh, Taylor Swift songs in a couple years. <laughs> you think he ends up in a Taylor Swift song and the relationship goes sour? Oh, I don't hope for that. Wouldn't that be some poetic justice, though? Like, you know, it we'll see. would be. I'm worried more about whoever's dating the Kardashians these days than I am Taylor, <laughs> Taylor Swift. <laughs> They're lethal. They all have names that start with K. Ruthless. Leave it here. Nine-year-old daughter just uh, during the commercial break melted my heart. Can I share that? She was at, they had their book fair at the school today. She knows I like football. I had a lunch pail when I was nine. It had all the, uh, all 28 at the time, NFL helmets on it. I collected those felt pennants. She was at the book fair today at her school. We gave her like $5 to go to the book fair with. You know what she got at the book fair? She got a poster, Stephen, 
with all the NFL logos on it. She's nine. Like, she got a poster with the NFL logos. Like, she uh, apparently appreciates football. That's got to make you feel good. Uh, It melted me. I was like, you're my Valentine. This is what it's about. Um, No disrespect to the other kids in the family, but, you know, they were buying other books at the book fair. And she bought a poster with the NFL logos on it. Um, She said she was tempted to cross out the Chiefs logo. How about that? Uh, Appreciate that. Let's do the five at five. We're going to have a conversation about Oregon, Oregon State, and their path after this season. They're uh, going in different directions, even though they will play the Civil War football game. But uh, before that, Stephen, you're going to lead us here in the five at five. Let's do it. The five at five. Number one. Here we well, go. Well, John, not the way we want to start it, but uh, Super Bowl parade for the Chiefs ends in tragedy as there was a shooting right at the end of the Super Bowl parade for the Chiefs in Kansas City, right at Union Station, where they were all meeting up at the end there. Uh, according to updated reports, now 21 people injured, one dead. Uh, Children's Mercy Hospital told KMBC TV that they were treating 12 patients from the rally, 11 of which were children, and nine of them have gunshot wounds. Um, just a sad, sad story and a sad, sad uh, chain of events that happened there on a day that should have been a celebration for the Kansas City Chiefs and their Super Bowl. Yeah, and, and look, uh, I said it off the top of the show today. It, it makes me sad for our country. It uh, bothers me that when we go into stadiums, we go to large-scale events. Hell, you go to a shopping mall, movie theater, you send your kids to school, that we don't automatically think of them as all being safe and secure. This is a parade for crying out loud. This is, um, you know, somewhere where everybody should have felt safe. And unfortunately, somebody brought a weapon. Not sure of all the details at this point. Latest reports have, uh, you know, as many as 20 people who uh, were shot in uh, or suffered serious injuries. One person dead. And uh, this is this should not have happened. There's no place for it. And enough with the thoughts and prayers. Let's do something about it. And and it bothered me, too, when, you know, people are saying this is not a terrorist act. Okay, cool. But if somebody pulls a gun out at an event or brings a gun to an event with the intent of harming other people, I don't know how I don't view that as a quote-unquote terrorist event. Sad stuff. Shouldn't have happened. Number two. Well, John, the 49ers, they've decided who their scapegoat is going to be for the Super Bowl loss, and it's going to be Steve Wilkes, the defensive coordinator. Kyle Shanahan announced today that Wilkes will be let go of his duties. Wilkes was with the team for just one year, filling in for D'Amico Ryans, who was the coordinator before, left for Houston to be their head coach. Niners, fourth in the NFL in points allowed per game, but Steve Wilkes will be not or will not be the defensive coordinator next season for the 49ers. While the Chiefs go the opposite way, they announced today that the organization signed Steve Spagnuolo, their defense according to a contract extension, mm-hmm. keeping their D.C. with their franchise. Uh, he is getting a lot of credit for what he did with the Chiefs' defense this postseason, and I would agree they were awesome when the offense was struggling. He really uh, led that team, length of his contract extension, not disclosed, but... Super Bowl teams going in opposite directions with their defensive coordinators. Yeah, it's interesting to see, like, you know, scapegoat or not, there were reports in the middle of the season that 
Kyle Shanahan was not happy with the defensive coordinator, Steve Wilkes. He made him come down out of the box to the sideline. That's always a precursor to let me look over your shoulder. There was a timeout that the Niners called during the game. Tony Romo pointed out that the Niners were not lined up correctly. Shanahan seemed frustrated. Shanahan's quote at the news conference today was, it shouldn't be that hard. Uh, and and look, it just it's apparent they're going in a different direction. Now, keep in mind, this is the 49ers team that had Robert Sala as the defensive coordinator and D'Amico Ryans as the defensive coordinator. And so they've lost guys to head coaching positions. Um, it'll be really important that they replace that coach with somebody that can match wits with, you know, the offensive, great offensive minds in the league, including Andy Reid. But wasn't it weird, like, Nick Bosa kind of called out the defense, coordinator yes. called out Will. Like, it seemed like, you're right, there was no communication, no, like, uh, you know, there was no chemistry between Steve Wilkes and the entire team. It seemed to me that, like, they, when players do that, you have to know that they're, what, they're getting the signal from the head coach that it's okay to do so. So I'm thinking Bosa either knew or had some kind of conversation with Kyle Shanahan in which he knew that, you know, he wasn't long for the job. And then also you kind of have this idea that the 49ers themselves, um, you know, there was an, it was evident, you know, they only gave up 19 points in regulation. Seven of them were gifted more or less from that punt that gave the short field to Patrick Mahomes. So it wasn't like the Super Bowl was a bad performance by Wilkes. I just think it had more to do with the season. Moving on. Number three. According to a report from Inside Texas, Texas Athletic Director Chris Del Conte hinted that the SEC will be moving to nine games, nine conference games, but not known exactly when. Del Conte said, we have eight games scheduled right now and working on going to a nine-game schedule. We have a ways to go with that. I would say this year we have an eight-game schedule. The following year we have another eight-game schedule. Then we'll look at going into a nine-game conference schedule. Now this would make a lot of sense as back in 2012 when the SEC added Missouri and Texas A&M. The SEC had two years of a temporary scheduling to work out uh, and tinker any of the scheduling rotations before they made it permanent. Uh, So it makes sense that they would have two years of an eight-game conference schedule. And then if they are to change it, it would be after the two years. But – some teams already have scheduled games for non-conference in the season of 2026 20, and beyond, so a nine-game conference schedule would force some cancellations. But uh, SEC may be going to nine-game conference schedules, which seems like they were so opposed against even like last season. Now it seems like it's going to be a uh, you know going to be happening for sure. Yeah, you have to ask yourself why. And part of this is you know they've had a competitive advantage in that they don't play each other as often. It has opened up opportunities for you know the second team to get into the four-team playoff. It just limits the number of uh, times you have potential exposure to losses when you play one fewer conference game. Part of this is due to the expanded playoff. The SEC is signaling to us that it's not as important to play one fewer game, meaning they know they're going to get a plethora of teams into the playoff. Second thing that it that it sort of indicates is that. You know, they've got extra teams coming in. They're, you know, it's hard to pay those payday games to get other opponents to play you. Their TV partner is probably telling them, hey, the game against, you know, Tennessee Chattanooga is not as good to us as a game against Texas or Oklahoma. We like to see you play each other more in those weeks. And I also think, you know, the partnership that's taken place between the Big Ten and the SEC. You know, we're all wondering what it means. And I, I'd love to get Greg Sankey, the SEC commissioner, on this show, and I think he's coming on Friday. 
But I love to get his thoughts on, are they potentially talking about splitting away? SEC, Big Ten, who's coming with them? And if that happens, there may not be a lot of room to play a bunch of games against lower-tier opponents in the non-conference. So it feels to me like the SEC is getting serious about yeah. Playing that schedule. Doesn't it sure. actually help the, the conference in a 12-team playoff? Because they're already going to get the benefit of the doubt with a lot of their teams because they're in the SEC. So now, you know, if Alabama has two losses, but, you know, a team like Florida were to beat Alabama, they're going to get so much credit, and they will have yes. a chance to make the playoff as well. Yeah, it does. I, I guess it get, pre- creates an extra opportunity for other teams in that conference to get a quality victory in front of the committee. And, yeah, when you see a season like, you know, you see a less-than-perfect Alabama or less-than-perfect Georgia team that drops a game against Ole Miss or, you know, Florida, then all of a sudden it validates that extra team. And maybe you're right. Maybe they know, hey, we're going to get three teams in every year. Let's Now, how do we get four in? Like, maybe that's the conversation they're having right now. Number four? Number four. Number four. Uh, John, LeBron James, Los Angeles Lakers star. Trade deadline came and passed. Lakers made no moves, and that was after a tweet that LeBron had uh, with an hourglass. Cryptic tweet. No one knew exactly what it meant. But apparently, according to a lot of sources, Woj, Ramona Shelburne, Yahoo Sports, the Golden State Warriors actually inquired about a trade for LeBron James right before the trade deadline on last Thursday. But Mm. James and the Lakers and Rich Paul, all of them said they had no interest in and a potential deal to go to the Golden State Warriors. Now, it was also not just the Warriors, the Philadelphia 76ers. They also made a brief inquiry about LeBron, uh, but that conversation ended very quickly, according to ESPN. LeBron does have the ability to be a free agent next season if he declines his $51.4 million option next season, and there is some talk that he may because of Bronny James. If he decides to go to the NBA, kind of wants to decide where he goes, but LeBron apparently was offered up in some trades by the Warriors. They wanted to get him, but uh, Lakers were not interested in trading him. Lakers ended up making no moves at the deadline. They're in ninth place in the Western Conference, while the Warriors are one game behind them in 10th place. It's interesting. Brian Windhorst, ESPN, talked a little bit about the potential of a LeBron trade. Yeah, I think there's two different ways to look at this. Obviously, if you're a fan, your initial reaction is going to be to, to dream about the concept of LeBron and Steph playing together. I don't think that was ever close to happening, but I think it does show that there was a lack of information. There was a lack of information from these teams because uh, Woj and Ramona also reported that the 76ers called the the, war, the uh, Lakers about LeBron because just the way things have gone for the Lakers this season and the passive-aggressive moves that LeBron has made left people wondering, you know, how does he actually feel about the Lakers? Where is his head at about them going now and going forward? And he gave an emphatic I'm committed here. And, you know, Rich Paul went on the record publicly last week saying he's not going to be traded. And that's why I think the Lakers were probably okay going to LeBron and Rich Paul with this opportunity uh, because they wanted to find out where LeBron was, too. Yeah, look, do you get the idea that LeBron likes being in Los Angeles as much or more as he likes being a Laker? Yeah, is it, I think, a, is it I, geography thing meaning? Yeah, I think it is. I think if he wants to be in Hollywood, he wants to be in California, he wants to be a celebrity. So I, I think that has a lot to the allure of for LeBron to be an LA Laker. Like he he likes that allure of being, you know, playing where Kobe played and Magic played and all the championships. I think it I think it means a lot to him and that's why he does like it there. But how, if you're LeBron, John, 
how do you decline a $51.4 million option next season? Like, I, I find it interesting that that is even an option for a guy who is the oldest player in the NBA. Like, I know. He is good, but he's not that good, is he? I, do, I don't know what he's thinking. And, I, and I'm not going to pretend to guess because I don't, have the, I don't have that experience and I can't relate to what he's going through. And it could be, you know, maybe, uh, maybe LeBron knows he's not worth $51 million and he's at a point in his career where he's like, hey, I want to make one more run and get serious about winning and let me do what I can do to help my team win big. Or maybe maybe he is looking to be like, yeah, let me get another $51 million. I don't know. What do you think is important to LeBron? That, that is a great question. I think playing with Bronny is going to be the most important thing. I think if he can manipulate a team to get Bronny James, I think that's where he will want to go. If he has to decline that option, if Bronny doesn't go to the draft, probably stays with the Lakers, takes that $51 million. But I, I think that's probably the most important thing is the legacy play with him and his son. I also want to add with the Philadelphia 76ers part, John, I, I think that's just Gerald Morey doing a really good job of being a GM and inquiring about team players, even though Joel Embiid is hurt. Like, I would love to have a guy in Portland that when, you know, Damian Lillard's on the team, they're actually just calling teams around and see what they can get. Apparently, Morey called the Suns for Kevin Durant, Devin Booker, uh, or Bradley Beal just to see if there's any interest in it. Just playing or playing the field, see what it can happen, but didn't work out. So it didn't seem like it was anywhere close, but it was very interesting that teams uh, thought maybe it was a little vulnerable to get LeBron. Interesting. Are we on number five now? We are. Number five. I knew that. We are on the precipice of history, John. Tomorrow, Caitlin Clark, as long as she stays healthy, she will be the all-time women's scorer in college basketball history with the most points, and she'll pass Kelsey Plum. She's seven points away from Plum. Clark has 3,520 points heading into tomorrow night's game against Michigan. Uh, game will be taking place in Iowa, so Clark will more than likely pass that record. And she's only 147 points away from passing uh, Pistol Pete Maravich from being the all-time leading scorer for men's and women's basketball. She's in fourth place right now behind Maravich, Plum, and Detroit Mercy and former Trailblazers Summer League guy Antoine Davis. Clark has five regular season games left, and then she'll have at least two postseason games, at least one in the Big Ten, one in the NCAA tournament. Now, probably more since Iowa's actually a good team, but if they were to get upset in both the first rounds, Seven games is the minimum left for Clark. She would need to average 21 points a game in those seven games. She averages 32. So I think by the end of the season, end of her career, uh, she'll be the all-time leading scorer in college basketball history, men's and women's, but she'll be the all-time women's scorer tomorrow in their game against Michigan. The women's basketball regional, the Portland regional, uh, is the Western regional. Caitlin Clark in Iowa ended up in the West last season. It was in Seattle. Uh, there's a real fair chance March 29th through April 1st, Caitlin Clark will be at Moda Center playing. I also think Oregon State's going to get in there. I think Scott Ruick's team and Oregon State, uh, really strong potential to end up in the Portland Regional. But uh, I think that's going to be fun. And, you know, there's several sessions. There's four sessions of the games at the Portland Regional. If you've ever been to a regional, it's, it's kind of interesting to see how they they match it up. It'll be two Sweet 16 games on March 29th. Two more Sweet 16 games the very next day on March 30th. Then an Elite Eight game on March 31st. And the other Elite Eight game on April the 1st. So if you are a, a ba women's basketball fan, Oregon State's going to be the host. Um, it'll be the, uh, it'll be the, it'll, it's a two-site format. So you get eight teams battling it out and two teams that advance to the Final Four from Portland. And it should be a it should be a whole bunch of fun to check that out. All right, coming up we're going to talk about 
What comes next for Oregon, Oregon State, Washington, Washington State, UCLA, USC, and others as they leave the Pac-12 conference? Um, I, I mentioned that story earlier about the guy, the kid in UK who was traveling to Spain and using airport Wi-Fi to send a Snapchat message in a group text to some of his friends, a group message, I guess, to some of his friends. Apparently, they're monitoring the Wi-Fi at the airports. He made a joke about a bomb, and he ended up being arrested for it. Uh, one of my friends texted me, and he's like, imagine the agents that are assigned to our text exchanges, because all we do is exchange ridiculous Instagram and TikTok posts back and forth, my friend and I. And he sent me one about the Karate Kid earlier today. That's pretty uh, typical of what it goes back and forth. I can imagine that FBI agent or whoever that is assigned to uh, check out those messages, Homeland Security, uh, NSA, whoever's monitoring these messages, just going, look at these guys. Do they work? What is their job? Like, what are they doing? Like, you know, you know it, so if, if people were monitoring your text exchanges at the airport, Stephen, what are they getting? Yeah, nothing, uh, nothing interesting. That's for sure. Probably just you know me complaining to my brother or something. Text him like, yeah, we haven't left yet. This is annoying. Like, let's let's. I want to get out of here. <laughs> it, that that wouldn't be fun. It wouldn't be anything fun yeah. though. I'm gonna guess they have certain keywords that they're looking for. All right, leave it here. Spencer McLaughlin's gonna join us. We're gonna have a conversation about what happens next for the Oregon Ducks, the Beavers, and others. I want to have a conversation about the Oregon Ducks. How they'll fare in the Big Ten. I was crawling out on a limb about a week ago talking about, you know, I think Oregon can challenge uh, Ohio State for the conference championship. And, um, you know, there are some uh, sports books that have, you know, installed Oregon as either the uh, number two choice in the conference or. They're offering final, you know, some some others are making Oregon kind of the sweetheart pick. And I want I need to see more from Dylan Gabriel, but it's a conversation I want to have. Spencer McLaughlin is a contributor at 750thegame.com. He also hosts a podcast called Locked on the Ducks. He's joining us now. Spencer, where are you on sort of handicapping Oregon's chances to win the Big Ten next year? I am crawling out on the limb, but I need to see Dylan Gabriel. Where are you? Well, I think your Gabriel take is pretty reasonable. I liked what he did at Oklahoma. He was good. He was solid. He is good. I, I don't think he's worthy of, you know, having the third best Heisman odds in all of college football. I think that, you know, kind of echoes what J.J. McCarthy had a season ago in which you've got a top five team nationally and the quarterback is always going to be just kind of naturally at the center of that particular conversation. So, um, I, I think he's good. I look at him and say, you know, Oregon doesn't need him necessarily to be Bo Nix or Marcus Mariota or, uh, you know, Herbert when he was at his best. Can he just be like Darren Thomas or Jeremiah Masoli? Because th- those guys were quarterbacks of national championship caliber teams as well. So I, I, I agree with you on the Gabriel point. I think in terms of handicapping Oregon into the Big Ten, I think they're a scratch golfer, John. I think they are doing a really, really good job in just a number of areas of making sure they're ready to go compete at the highest level. And everywhere you look, it's, you know, kind of Oregon 2, Ohio State 1 in the Big Ten. I think it's more like 1A, 1B. You can put them in whatever order you'd like. But I think something you'd have to discuss is how does Oregon not have at least a little bit of an advantage 
because when they play in the regular season, they play in Eugene at Austin Stadium. And I think that's a pretty notable edge there. And uh, Oregon doesn't have to play USC. They play UCLA instead. And the Bruins are going to be in a complete rebuild year with a guy who has not been a head coach and hasn't been a coordinator yet in his career. And I think that's a tough situation down there in Los Angeles running that UCLA football program for, for Deshaun Foster. So I think Oregon's schedule is uh, is pretty solid. I think it's you know mildly more difficult than it could have been because you play Ohio State and Michigan, but you miss Penn State, you miss USC, you know Washington and Michigan both I think are pullback teams from last year. So I think the schedule works out. I think the team is there and uh, and they just got to go execute on the field. All right, let's talk about the potential pitfalls. Let's start with Chip Kelly. Uh, you know, when I see him go from UCLA to Ohio State, I tip my cap to Ryan Day because that is a hell of a play caller. It, you know, he know, and he's game planned against Oregon more recently than most in the Big Ten. He uh, understands the you know he'll be just able to call plays. How much of a factor will he ha- will he be at Ohio State in your opinion? I don't think they could have made a better hire once Bill O'Brien left. And frankly, I, I think Chip Kelly's uh, a better hire there than Bill O'Brien because of his familiarity and knowledge with Ryan Day. You know, their their background goes back a long ways to when Chip Kelly was at New Hampshire and Day was his quarterback. And Day has been on Chip's staffs before. And now Chip will be on Ryan Day's staff. And, you know, if Day's going to take a more hands-off approach, which he is, and let somebody else call the plays. You want someone who aligns with your vision offensively. I, I don't think there's any chance uh, of this being a, a one-and-done proposition as an o- offensive coordinator unless Chip Kelly is suddenly viewed as an NFL OC or, or coaching target in a major way because that, I think, is where he wants to get back to. But, you know, he, he's going to be able to be at his best because he can just coach, you know, Ryan Day and Ohio State's brand and Brian Hartline, their wide receivers coach. They can handle recruiting. Chip can just game plan, call plays, show up, and coach ball, which is what he wants to do. And I think it makes Ohio State very scary. I think on the other side, Oregon has perhaps the greatest staff continuity of any contender in the Big Ten next year. In fact, I, as I think about it and say it out loud, I'm pretty sure they do. I don't, I don't know what happened at Penn State uh, with their coordinators, but Oregon's got their co-DCs back, their offensive coordinator, the head coach, all back. Ohio State will have a new OC. I think it's a really good move. But Michigan is going to have a brand-new staff. Washington's got a brand-new staff. And Penn State, you know, they've got a really good staff, a good team, and a good program. But I will believe it when I see it when you talk about them as a Tier 1 team in the Big Ten. I think they're at the top of Tier 2. So uh, I I think that Chip Kelly makes Ohio State very dangerous. And I think that they are going to be able to score points, run the ball, have play action, everything that – you know, we've come to expect from Chip Kelly offenses. I think he's got much pers- better personnel, particularly a quarterback, than he had a season ago. I am left thinking about, you know, USC, UCLA as well. You know, we've talked, you know, Chip Kelly leaves. I thought Chip made a wise decision to leave because I think he was going to struggle. I think there, that was a five or six win season next year. I'm watching Deshaun Foster and I'm going, uh, this is going to be rough for him too. I'm thinking five wins, you know, Spencer, as, as UCLA heads into the Big Ten. Their win total is five and a half, and I'm not, I'm not touching the over. I, I'm, not, I'm not even sniffing. I'm not going anywhere near the over if, if I were so inclined. I, I would hammer the under in that particular realm because, you know, UCLA last year, their win total was eight and a half, and 
they ended up going under that with, or I think it was seven, no, it was eight and a half. And they, they went under that going seven and five. And I, I think that for the Bruins, they had a really good roster last year. They were just a quarterback away. But now they're in the same dire straits at the quarterback position where Ethan Garbers is the best option you've got. And he's, you know, fine, capable, but he's not doing anything special for you. He's not winning you games. You just hope he doesn't lose you the game. And then they have a much worse roster because they lost guys to the transfer portal. They lost guys to the draft, like Laisu Latu, who's one of the most dominant defensive ends I think we've seen in the Pac-12 in the last 10, 15 years. I mean, if you were making an all uh, an all Pac-12 defensive team of the last five seasons, you'd have Kayvon Thibodeau at one defensive end spot and Laisu Latu at the other. I mean, that, that guy is ridiculously good. And UCLA doesn't have him anymore. I'm pretty sure they lost the Murphy Twins as well, who have been great along that front. So new staff, first-time head coach, who's you know not calling plays, which is not uncommon in college, so I don't necessarily hate that. He's trying to be you know optimistic, culture, pro-player sort of guy, and that's great. Players are buying it, and that's great. You, you want energy, you want excitement, positivity around the program, but, but the, the, the game is played on the field, not in a locker room, and that locker room might be in a good spot. For, for UCLA, but when they take the field, they're going to be at a talent deficit in a lot of their games, and they're going to be at a coaching deficit because they've got a guy who's going to be learning on the job. You compare that to, you know, Dan Lanning in his first year. He was someone who certainly ha- had uh, improvements to be made as a head coach, and I think he's made them over the last couple of seasons. I thought he got better year one to year two, but he was undergoing that growth process with, with an Oregon roster that had well-stocked cupboards from a recruiting and talent standpoint. And then he was able to build on that and bring in more talent. Who's UCLA bringing in? I, I mean, Ethan Garbers, I, the Big Ten is not loaded with elite quarterbacks, but is he top half? Probably not. So you got a bottom half of the conference quarterback with a bottom half of the conference roster and a first-time head coach. I, I think that could spell a three- to four-win season. Yeah, I think it's I think it's going to be ugly. And USC, meanwhile, no Caleb Williams. What do they look like, in your opinion, as they make the bridge to the Big Ten? The brand is there. Lincoln Riley wobbling a little. I don't know. I didn't love the defense last season. I I think USC has done fantastic work this offseason. Not good, not great. I think it's been fantastic. You look at the personnel they've got coming back, and I, I've got no qualms about Lincoln Riley coaching offense. I think Miller Moss quite literally scared away Will Howard, who's going to Ohio State to play quarterback. He was all set to transfer to USC is what the reports indicated, and then all of a sudden you look up, nope, he's going to Ohio State instead. Why? Well, Miller Moss went and tore up the uh, ACC runners-up in Louisville, who had a great defense. He hung 42 on him in, uh, in, the, was it the, L, or in the Holiday Bowl and suddenly he looked like quarterback of the future, and he looked really, really good to me. And he's got Lincoln Riley, who's got a great track record with quarterbacks. Their problem, as you said, was defense. And they went and hired DeAnton Lynn, who you know is the greatest embodiment of UCLA's lack of institutional commitment to football because they let him walk to their crosstown rival. Washington wouldn't let Ryan Grubb go to Alabama because they said, we'll give you $2 million a year because we need you as our OC. DeAnton Lynch said, I want to go be the defensive coordinator for USC, and UCLA said, okay, yeah, that's fine. We'll just, you know, we'll, we'll figure something out. That guy's a great DC, not a good, a great DC. He's bringing a couple of talented players with him. They brought in a couple of transfers from Oregon State 
Easton Mascarenas Arnold and his younger brother, Achille Arnold. He's got Kamari Ramsey, the safety, coming over from UCLA. Bear Alexander's back on the defensive line. Their problem last year was coaching and scheme, and that is going to improve with DeAnton Lynn at the helm. You know Lincoln Riley will score points. I like USC's over win total. I think they're at 7.5 or 8.5. I, I think they, they've got a tough schedule. It, it is brutally tough. But I think that USC has had a fantastic offseason and is set up for a lot of success going into the Big Ten, certainly a lot more than UCLA. Washington is a wild card. You know, new coach, no Michael Penix Jr., Jed Fish bringing some guys from Arizona, but not enough. Um, how difficult will the transition to the Big Ten be for the Huskies? I don't think any tougher than what it would have been had the Pac-12 stayed together because the league would have been pretty loaded. You know, Oregon, Washington, USC, Jonathan Smith probably sticks around Oregon State. They could still be a good team with Trent Bray, Arizona, and would still have Jed Fish. Utah, of course, is steady Eddie in college football. I think for Washington, it's definitely a rebuild sort of year, but it definitely feels a lot more optimistic in Seattle on Montlake than it did about a month ago. Or, or a month and a half ago because, well, that was, you know, time is moving very slowly, about a month ago because they had nobody coming in and DeBoer was gone. Who are they going to hire? And suddenly you look up and you say, okay, you've got a veteran quarterback in Will Rogers. That gives you a high floor, maybe not a high ceiling, but at the very least a high floor. You're pairing him at the quarterback position with a good play caller in Jed Fish, who's got a great track record on, on that front, working with a couple of different guys. He's going to have a couple of weapons. They brought in a couple players from Arizona, at least. Are they going to have the depth to contend? No, but I think Washington should expect to be a bowl team. I mean, at the very least, I don't think they're going to pull a TCU and go five and seven. I would be, you know, I, I think eight wins is probably their ceiling next year, but I, I don't think that they're, you know, going to be able to make a dark horse run to contend for the conference. I, I, don't, I don't think the roster is quite there. But in 2025, yeah, I think Jed Fish is a really good coach, and and we'll have things figured out by then. Yeah, and I, I you know, look, the, the Pac-12 teams that transition are all going to be interesting. But of the four going into the Big Ten, the most interesting to me is UCLA. I just think they have uh, a lot of volatility. They're going to have a basketball program that's trying to matter. They're a basketball school. No Chip Kelly, and in fact, he's he's a coordinator for one of the other teams. Um, most interesting transition team for you? Mm, as we go into the Big Ten, I mean, that's tough. That's tough. I, I like Oregon a lot because I think they're the only team along with Utah. U Utah benefits the most from this because Utah is, is going into the Big 12, and they've got the opportunity to be a conference contender. They're the conference favorite. You know, Oregon will be the second favorite to Ohio State. But I think Utah, with the situation that they've got, it is, is set up for so much success. I think it is playoff or bust for Kyle Whittingham and company because you, you've got a seventh-year quarterback returning. You bring in Dorian Singer via the portal. You've got a couple other weapons. They return something like 70% of their production from a year ago. I, I think they have got all the tools. To, to, to win the Big 12 and win it convincingly. They just have to go out there and much like Oregon and execute. So I think those are the only two teams that jump into being a conference contender right away. But in their new home, 
I would not sleep on USC, though. I, I really wouldn't. I know everyone likes to laugh at Lincoln Riley because the defense was terrible. and yes. He fired Alex Grinch two years too late. Like it, it should, He never should have gone with him from Oklahoma to USC, and they'd probably make the college football playoff in, uh, in, in his first year when they lost to Utah in the Pac-12 title game, and they were ranked fourth in the college football playoff rankings going into it. So I, I think that USC is kind of poised for, for a bounce back there conference contender I, I need to see how their defense adjusts and how that meshes with Lincoln Riley's philosophy but you know we saw Ryan Day change the identity of his team when you know they were getting pushed around by Oregon and then Michigan uh, a couple times in a row and I know they lost this year but it was a lot different it, it looked and felt a lot different and I, I think that that's what Lincoln Riley has to be able to do and we'll see if they're able to make it happen Spencer McLaughlin you can find him locked on Ducks podcast Follow him on Twitter. Catch him on 750thegame.com. Spencer, I appreciate you joining us, man. Thank you. Yeah, anytime. Thanks, John. You bet. There he goes, Spencer McLaughlin. Love it. Uh, I think UCLA is the most interesting team. And interesting, I don't mean that like, you know, they're the best team by far. It's just I'm intrigued and what's going to happen to them. And I'm curious if there will be regrets at UCLA about going to the Big Ten. They're not making the same transition that Oregon and Washington and USC are making. It is not about football for US, UCLA. And John Wilner and I on the uh, Conzano and Wilner podcast went way in the weeds on it, if you want to check that out. Coming up, we're going to talk about Washington State and Oregon State. They have a huge week and a pivotal week in front of them. I'll tell you more about it next. Big week for Oregon State and Washington State. Washington State uh, president, university president, Kirk Schultz, will be making his pitch to the college football playoffs management group. That is the 11-member uh, panel that oversees the CFP. Uh, Kirk Schultz, the president at Washington State, has got control of that group. Um, because they all, the rest of the voters, would like to uh, move to a 5 plus 7 qualification model, and they would like the Pac-2 to not have an automatic qualifier spot. doesn't make sense. There's only two teams in the conference, and they'd probably like to reduce the distributions that are being paid to Oregon State and Washington State. And Kirk Schultz, the Washington State president, is saying no. The CFP distributions should stay for Oregon State and Washington State at about $6 million. That's what each of the schools, the Power Five conference schools, receives. And uh, he, he believes that they should uh, leverage the CFP format, because there's no format beyond 2025. There's two more years left on the TV contract. He believes that they should... Uh, you know, extend Oregon State and Washington State's status and ability to vote on the committee beyond 2025. He's basically saying, I'm not going to vote, and all votes need to be unanimous, and I'm not going to uh, register a vote unless the rest of the panel agrees to recognize Oregon State and Washington State beyond 2025. I think it's a good move by Kurt Schultz. He's playing all of his cards. My friend John Wilner... Uh, uh, basically classified it as, you know, why would you go into uh, into halftime if you have a timeout in your uh, holster? Why wouldn't you use it? And so Kirk Schultz, the president at Washington State, is calling his timeout. 
He's going to present his proposal to the rest of the committee. And I think what he's going to try to do is he's going to try to get Oregon State and Washington State a seat at the table beyond 2025. Now, there is a deal on the table for $1.3 billion for the playoff beyond 2025. It remains unsigned. There's no format. And that format needs to be decided by this committee. Schultz at Washington State is saying Oregon State and Washington State need to have a voice in that room. Should not be cut out because the Pac-12 is still recognized as a conference by the NCAA. They're still a conference. They should still have a seat at the table, says Kirk Schultz. Keep an eye on that. That is going down tomorrow, Thursday. Kirk Schultz, Washington State president. I will try to get him on the show on Friday. Greg Sankey, confirmed SEC commissioner, will be on the program. He is also on that group, that management group, and so we'll get him to kind of download on what is it that Washington State wants and is the rest of college football receptive to it. That's on Friday's show. Michael's in Eugene, listening on Fox Sports Eugene. Michael, what's on your mind? John, my man, sorry about your nines. That's a tough one. but nah, It happens. It happens. It does. But uh, I was thinking about all my niner friends. I was rooting for D'Amador and Eric Armstead as a duck, but a couple thoughts on your last guest. So I wrote this uh, as a comment to one of your articles. Sparty is a very underrated job, and Jonathan Smith is actually in a much better place than he would be in Westwood. They put 70000 in that building every Saturday. They have all the resources to win. He took Aiden Childs with him. The UCLA fans, unless they're 10 and 2, are at Hermosa Beach. Okay. Chip Kelly has not been a dynamic play caller since the 2012 Fiesta Bowl. <laughs> the world has caught up the chip. There's actually going to be strife because Ryan Day is an incredible play caller, and he made that move so people would stop looking at him in Columbus. USC, you cannot trust Lincoln Riley. They are going to take a step back. Caleb Williams bailed them out of a lot of games that would have been huge blowouts, a.k.a. their trip to Autzen. Can can you do a talk about Oregon hoops? I loved your interview with Dana last week. I agree. He is he is on his way out. I just don't see how he's back. What happened to the women's team? Coach Graves, they're the worst team in the league, and they're getting punked. Since COVID and Sabrina, what happened, my man? Right about that, and I like Coach Graves. I know him. But what what is going on up there? So I'm yeah, going to hang up yeah. and listen. Later, buddy. Yeah, thank you for that. I mean, I appreciate it. First of all, I'm going to start. He, you know, he starts off by saying, you know, hey, sorry about your Niners. I had a question in the mailbag that was along those lines. Like, what do you do when your team loses? Like, wasn't today great perspective for that? Like, there are so many people who take losses so hard. Fans take losses hard. Fans are ready to fight each other at stadiums. And then you see something like what happened today at the uh, Kansas City Chiefs parade and rally. Somebody brings out a gun, starts shooting, and all of a sudden it's like, okay, it's just sports. We know that. It's just sports. Try to remember that when things feel like uh, they're getting too big. Like, I, It was interesting. In our living room, we had a bunch of 49er fans watching the game, and there was one kid who was a 9-year-old kid who was rooting for the Kansas City Chiefs. And and I said this earlier, but I want to say it again. Like The game ended. Chiefs won in overtime. And that poor 
nine-year-old kid was like trying to hide over by the end of the couch. He's quietly celebrating. And I said, I said, Rhett, just celebrate, man. Just, it's all right. Like, his team won. It's okay. Like, I think we got to get to a place where, you know, we know we can disagree and not hate each other. But we know that, like, sometimes your team isn't going to win. And Washington fans went through this with getting to the college football playoff. There were Washington fans like Softy going to pieces because Washington wasn't beating Michigan. And I was like, hey, enjoy the ride. Like 130 other teams didn't get anywhere near the playoff game. So, you know, enjoy the ride. Enjoy the journey. That's part of being a fan, I think, getting immersed into it. Secondarily, he talked about Chip Kelly as a play caller not being good since 2012. I don't know. I don't know that Chip Kelly has been asked to call plays since about 2012 and be the primary play caller. So I am really interested to see what UCLA is lost in a head coach. And a lot of UCLA fans think they haven't lost a lot because Chip Kelly wasn't doing the transfer portal, wasn't doing NIL in the way that college coaches on a major level are doing today. And they're looking over at Ohio State going, take him. But I'm looking at Ohio State going, are they getting a different coach in Chip Kelly? They're getting Chip Kelly the coordinator and the play caller. And guess who taught Ryan Day? Guess who coached Ryan Day? Chip Kelly at New Hampshire. And so I'm really curious to see if that reunion of Ryan Day and Chip Kelly, if there is a blossoming savant-like play caller that comes out of that, who has all of these weapons to use when he's calling plays, like he's not at UCLA trying to get by with you know, the UCLA caliber of recruit that he recruited. He's at Ohio State getting the guys that Ohio State got in the portal and in rec- high school recruiting. That, that is a stable of players that are weapons. So I'm, I actually think Chip Kelly could be lethal in that offense. So I'm interested to see how Ohio State looks and how Chip Kelly coaches and calls plays. Um, now, on to you know, the, the third part of the caller's question. He asked about Kelly Graves and the Oregon women's basketball program. I think that they were hurt by the same thing that Oregon State was hurt by in around 2014, 2013. Mark Campbell, assistant coach, leaves Oregon State, spends uh, an inordinate amount of time bad-mouthing Oregon State. He goes over to, jumps over to Oregon. Made life really difficult for Oregon State and Scott Ruick. And I think it was really interesting to see Scott Ruick go to a Final Four in spite of losing Campbell. I think Mark Campbell has done the Oregon program dirty in jumping you know, first to Sacramento State, then on to TCU. I've talked to several athletic directors now who have told me that you know they don't think that Campbell has conducted himself in a professional way in the way that he speaks about the University of Oregon, the way he talks to recruits about Oregon. I don't know that firsthand. I would sure like to talk to some of those recruits and hear what story is being spun. I think Kelly Graves had a really unfortunate injury in his backcourt at the beginning of this season. Ducks are struggling. No doubt they're, you know, they're not just getting beat. They're getting beat by the University of Portland by 30. They're, ha- they're having real struggles on the court. Next season, he's got a really good guard coming out of Seattle. Garfield High School product. He's got an international player who's a post player who thinks going to be pretty good. Uh, but I think I think there was a basically a recruiting cycle and maybe a half where he lost a bunch of players in the portal and had the waters poisoned, had the well poisoned, so to speak, by a exiting assistant coach. 
Uh, I'm really curious to see if he can rebound from that, if he can come out of that. Is next year's class going to be good enough? And I also am interested for, you know, uh, on the topic of Division Street, they're funding football. They're funding men's basketball. Is Division Street supporting women's basketball at all? I don't see it right now in recruiting. I'd be really curious there. I'll do some digging. All right, grab a podcast of this radio show wherever you get a podcast. Make sure you're back here tomorrow. Friday, big guest Greg Sankey, SEC commissioner, will be with us. The bald-faced truth, not here for a long time, just a good time. Happy Valentine's Day.